still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And you are our friends And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's drive Through right here Wherever you happen to be on this fall day It's pretty chilly here I'm sure it's chilly in another place we're going to talk to in a moment, and maybe where you are right now, unless you're in Hawaii, where we all should be right now. I said right now several times there, I'm your host, the great Brian Last. I've already screwed this up. I'm going to get made fun of in a second by this man. Here on this episode of The drive Through, with no feces or turds whatsoever, <laughs> here's the leader of the cult of Cornette, Mr. Jim Cornette. I'm so cold, I'm so, so cold, I'm so goddamn cold, I'm so cold. Do I sound like Mick Jagger? Maybe, maybe Dean Jagger. Was that, were you trying to do the Rolling Stones, She's So Cold? Was that what that was? Yes, but I just launched into the middle of it without, I'm so hot for her, I'm so hot for her, but she's so, I just went, I'm so cold. You just did that several times, and anything you sing, it sounds like it belongs in a Merry Melodies cartoon. Well, I love to sing. Uh, there you go. About to move and the tune and the spring. Uh. Oh, I'm so goddamn cold. It's cold. I'll have you know that it snowed. It actually snowed an appreciable amount of snow in southern Indiana to just 20, 25 miles above us here this morning. And it was freezing cold. And I don't mean that with hyperbole. I'm talking about 32 degrees, which is the freezing temperature. Here at the castle this morning, and it, it's only the middle of October, but it's, this weekend it'll be back to 80, I'll have you know. And I thought we were doing bad, and then I looked at the, uh, the news, and they had a report from Marquette, Michigan, my favorite place that Crockett flew us on his plane one time in January when there was goddamn four feet of snow just sitting around on the ground. And it has already snowed six or eight inches today in Marquette, Michigan. But we haven't done anything to harm the climate. But I took Harley Quinn out, and she's got a, a built-in fur coat on, right? So she loves it. She loves the, the breeze. She loves the breeze to blow her hair in the breeze, and she pees, and then she poops, and she poops, and, you know, droops and things like that. <laughs> Anyway, so she's out there just taking her merry old time trying to find the right place to irrigate and cultivate and inseminate. And I'm standing inseminate. there. 
Well, you know, with whatever the bodily fluids are that creates the biological machinations that go into the ground and create the fertilizer that grows the flowers in the spring that we love to sing about. So that's how you're going to justify using insemination there. I worked it in and only you noticed. Everybody else would have fucking bought it and just took the ride with me. But you got to be a goddamn grammatician. I like to notice. But, uh, all right, keep going. <laughs> So anyway, I was freezing my cockles of my heart off. It, I, I didn't have warm cockles. I had frozen cockles. So then I had to come back in the house. And, and we've got the heat on. We got the heat on. And we got to have the heat on when it's cold out. It's a very musical show today, isn't it? We got lots we of questions a- from Starkville <laughs> and other places. <laughs> Lots of we ought to do a variety show featuring the Arcadian Vanguard players. Like this, instead of the Carol Burnett show, it could be the, the Jim Cornette show. Kippelman With, has to do the voiceover. Kippelman can be the announcer. Yeah. And you can be Lyle Wagoner, because you're the you know the best looking one of the bunch of, of everybody around here. When Stacy was talking about the Carol Burnett show the other day, the sketches they used to do, and she said, because it's on me TV now, of course. And she said, uh, she said, I love the, the sketches with Harvey Keitel and Tim Curry. <laughs> <laughs> Our apologies to Corman and, and uh, Conway on that. But and Keitel. Anyway, and Keitel. And Keitel. I, don't, I think Curry was probably flattered by the whole thing. I'll tell you, the Carol Burnett show would be fantastic if you replace Harvey Corman with Harvey Keitel. <laughs> totally different show. It would be awesome. The vibe would be completely changed from the start. Well, Vicky Lawrence would feel quite threatened. I think <laughs> we're uh, we, we got some talk today on. God damn it! Now you tickled me with Vicky Lawrence. We've got some talk today on uh, bad gimmick rehab and renovation. So maybe they could recast that show and and do it right this time. Um. Speaking of casting a show, are you going to tell me it's your show? But are you going to tell the people Allegedly. that I'm I'm one of the big stars over at Vice again this week with the, with their new program featuring me on on the YouTube? That's right. You're probably confusing a lot of people because you are on so many of the different programs on Vice and Vice TV. But this was something that popped up, and a lot of people in the last day have jumped on it on Twitter and on social media, and of course on YouTube. But it's another Vice program. Not necessarily set. I just actually not at all centered around wrestling, except this one episode is. Yes, and it, it's called "I Was There," and I've talked about it a couple times on the podcast here that we shot some stuff for it, and they were going to tell me, you know, I asked, I said, let me know when it's going to air so that I can promote it on our show, the exact date and premiere and whatever, and they okay and. And I heard like on Sunday, yeah, it comes up tomorrow. Oh, shit. Well, so it's already up there. It's already gotten, I believe, over 100,000 views. But uh, if you go to YouTube, as so many of you do when you go to official Jim Cornette on YouTube, go to YouTube and search for Vice. I was there. And it is a series they've done, YouTube uh, exclusive series of people different people that were in different places that made some type of history or uh, and caused some notoriety and they give their first person accounts and then of course there's there's always b-roll 
And fortunately, I had most of my own B-roll because I was the photographer at ringside, as we all know, for Lawler and Kaufman. And they shot the photos and some of my ephemera. And it's just, it's about, what, 12 minutes long. And just telling the story again. And they did a real nice job with the editing and everything. They made me sound learned and coherent. And um, and so that is up now on YouTube. But the other, we got to get everybody to watch this thing. Because I've got to beat the number of views, the other episodes in the series. I got six cops indicted. And I was there when they dropped a bomb on Pittsburgh. And all this other, uh, all the other episodes contain some level of violence and chaos and political strife and upheaval it was nice just sit down and tell a nice little story about a wrestling angle but it's it's a it's a cool series you you actually had some positive praise for it oh young one yeah i thought it was really nice i think the simplicity of it is what made it really good and also the fact that it was accurate the fact that you were there you were saying things that were factual you know, they didn't use as much video footage. They they were very careful about fair use with this thing, but they didn't use as much video footage as I well, thought we they know, would. Well, we know that the YouTube uh, uh, gods up there and in, in wherever out in California, they, they're, a little, they're a little feisty about that kind of stuff. But it was very well done, and it's one of those stories that people never get tired of, and it was nice hearing your perspective, and thankfully there were those photos. Really, I guess it's all about those photos of you emerging whenever they did of you photographing them as Kaufman was being stretched out through the crowd. When was the first time you saw those photos? When was the first time you were aware of them? I actually, I think it was, well, what is it now? The days blur these days, uh, but three or four years ago, wasn't it? Um, when the uh, Memphis newspaper did a retrospective on the match and the whole thing, and they printed their pic, because the only two photographers there was the, local Memphis uh, newspaper photographer and me. I would knew I was shooting for, you know, obviously the program, but also, you know, after one of the pictures. And meanwhile, it was a local news story in Memphis. So the newspaper sent some, they didn't usually have anybody at ringside in Memphis. That was a special occasion as far as newspaper photographer. Every once in a while, they'd do a story if something big was going on. So, the only way for anybody to have taken pictures of me being there is if there was another photographer and all those years later that popped up. And I even knew some of the people in the front row there that I was attempting not to trip over as they were bringing the stretcher by. So, you know, years ago when the tape was going around, like in the nineties before everyone knew everything and everyone knew that Juanita Wright Sapphire was a big fan and that she had attended fan things before she had been a manager of Dusty Rhodes as Sapphire. A lot of people thought Foxy was Sapphire. I saw somebody on Twitter like day before yesterday said that. Well, that 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 was Fox or that was uh, Sapphire. She was in the WWF. No, Foxy was <laughs> good old Foxy Jackson. I don't know what her given first Christian name was. Um, that's what they. That's what she identified herself with when she volunteered the first week out of the crowd. And they, I mean, what a great wrestling name, right? Foxy Jackson. But no, that was her one and only foray into the world of, well, the two and only, the first match and the rematch. And then she faded back into obscurity. Two follow-up questions for you. One, 
Do you think the word foxy is underused nowadays? Should it be yes. brought back? And secondly, yes. yes. Well, hold on. And secondly, <laughs> I brought up that Juanita Wright Sapphire was a wrestling fan years before she actually became a manager. Did you know her? Uh, somewhat. I had uh, obviously, you know, you would all the people who were in that circle would see each other's names in the fan club columns in the news uh, newsletters or even the magazines like the wrestling news and uh and then i'm gonna say that she was at at, at, at least one of the uh wfia the fan conventions that i was at and you know, a couple of people had heard talk about her that I knew that went to St. Louis. I'm pretty sure Norman Dooley probably knew her, you know, better than I did. Uh, but yeah, we were cognizant. I was cognizant that she was a fan in St. Louis. And then when the Sapphire thing happened, I didn't at first because I didn't see Sapphire before I heard about it. I'm like, what the fuck? And then, you know, they I can't remember whether somebody told me it was her. Or I saw it was her on video first. That's been 35 years. I forgot to make notes on that, but, but that was just, um, you know, that they knew her from, uh, you know, they'd been going to St. Louis. Uh, well, obviously a bunch of the guys been going there forever, but the WWF had been running since 84. That was one of the first markets. So they, she's smart to the business and she's got that personality. So I guess that's, I don't know who pitched it. Sounds like a Pat Patterson to me. Was the WFIA the greatest breeding ground for wrestling managers? <laughs> well, when you think about it, the WFIA at that time was composed of what the, uh, between the people who actually went to the conventions and the people who joined and got the newsletters, maybe there was 100, 150 legitimately smart fans that were smart to the business at that point in time in the whole country that weren't actually in the business. I'm not just talking about knowing that, you know, oh, they, they, they let each other win or whatever, that level of smart. I'm talking about actually knowing what the business was. That was probably all of them. And they all at one point joined that group in the seventies. And when you think about it, all those people were fans, so that means they, they weren't looking at getting into wrestling in an athletic capacity. Because you remember, you've seen some of the photos of the group, me included. It wasn't like goddamn breeding ground for the next, you know, developmental circuit. But that's the way that people traditionally had, even before it was a tradition, gotten into the wrestling business in other capacities besides wrestling uh, the grand wizard abdullah farouk before that he was uh, you know mr clean he valeted for the uh you know the sheik in in the late 60s but he started as a tv announcer and he would just he was a hanger on bobby heenan he was the the guy that carried the ring jackets and washed bruiser's car but they were that level of dedicated inside fan that wanted to get closer to the business and stuck around or insinuated themselves, me included, until somebody realized, wait a minute, this isn't my next heavyweight champion, but this might be my next TV announcer, my next manager, my next booker, my next whatever, referee, whatever the case. 
And so it made sense that a lot of the people that would become managers would have some, in the 80s, would have some involvement in the mid to late 70s with that fan organization, which was the only real group of smart fans. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And when you think of the managers that came out of it, you obviously, Dave Brzezinski became a manager. Yeah, Supermouth Dave Drayson. Heyman was, I don't know if he was ever a card-carrying member, and he came on a little a little later, but he was of the same genre of person that would join the, and uh, oh my God, Candy Divine. Well, she and became I, a wrestler. Well, and manager she, too. She yeah. became a wrestler and manager, and, and of course, Eddie Gilbert, but Eddie was involved in everything. Photographer, announcer, if he be good, uh, fucking fan club person and wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps as a wrestler but uh you know that yeah that generation the guy in the photo next to you the photo of all the fans at the 1980 convention in atlanta and you have the jerry lawler shirt on yes yeah and that was that was memphis in 79 oh, that was i memphis. wasn't wearing lawler in 80 why wouldn't you be wearing lawler in 80 because we were in atlanta right but everyone was representing their favorite wrestler in the shirt like there was well, a, yeah, someone but, with a Backlund shirt there. Backlund wasn't there. But the only reason I had a Lawler shirt with me is because we were in Memphis. I would have taken a Lawler shirt to fucking Atlanta because then if I had a head of shirt, I would have taken a fucking Freebird shirt. I don't know. Well, you, would, you wouldn't have had a Freebird shirt in 79 or 80, but you would have had a Lawler shirt at that point in time. Who the hell was the guy with the Jumbo Saruta shirt? You know, uh, God damn it. I'm trying to picture the picture and where did he get that in 1980 or 79 if it's 79 it's even more amazing (laughs) well see yes but those those were the fans who were getting the japanese magazines i was already taking pictures and there was like walt Bolansky was getting the japanese magazines in and i'm pretty sure walt's in that picture it's gotta be i believe that or he didn't have a wrestling shirt i believe he is um candy divine's in that picture yes and she she had her Leap and Lanny fan club. She was president of Leap and Lanny's fan club. Oh. Um, but anyway, that that was the group of people, all twelve of us, that were getting the Japanese magazines in the United States. It, that it, that weren't Japanese people in the United States in 1979. That was the probably the whole group, and maybe a couple of guys in California. They sold them, I think, on some of the stands out in Los Angeles. It's such a um, statement, just the idea of showing up to a fan convention. Everyone there is wearing the typical shirts, Dusty, Jerry Lawler. All of a sudden, you show up in a Jumbo Saruta shirt. <laughs> You're asking to be talked to. Well, and, and I remember, he was a veteran of the Amarillo circuit, so Eloise Mascaro would have known who he was, probably, and there you go. And And also, one of the most popular attendees at those conventions was a... I don't know how old she was, but probably a 70-something-year-old woman from Dallas that loved the Von Erichs. And, and she's I mean, the reason where, everyone has those programs. Yes. Where are you going to find today in modern times with this product of 70-something-year-old woman that's the fucking centerpiece of the fan convention? Going back to the Vice, I was there special. Did they interview you yet for the new one? I know they're talking to some other people. They just talked to Steven. About... About I was there, wrestling disaster in Beckley. Oh, hey, now, come on. That's going to be, that's actually going to be for Steven's YouTube channel that he's starting over there, the Baron of Beckley. 
He'll do it for Stan, uh, and Stan will just say, I wasn't there. It wasn't me. Yeah, Stan will say, was it? That was, that was Dennis. It wasn't me. All these years, I've been laboring under a mistaken identity. Uh, but if you want to watch some more Vice and some more Tales from the Territories, folks, well, the as we record this program, it airs tonight, 10 p.m. on Tuesday nights, Eastern Time, on Vice TV is Tales from the Territories. And this week's program is going to be on the AWA. And by the time you hear this, it will have already aired. So catch one of the reruns. And I haven't seen this one either. Uh, So we will all be surprised together. But remember, I'm coming up in the next few weeks. And real quickly, I'm pleased and proud to tell everyone that another couple of hundred boxes. (laughs) I say this every time and it just. It's like one of those horror movies where the guy keeps doing something. He looks up and there's more shit that he has to do than when he started. Uh, but another couple of hundred boxes being handed off to the Feather Bottoms tomorrow, a big mailing by the, the end of the week and this weekend. And we are, I would say, about at the halfway point of that big log jam that we started on September 17th with the on sale of the brand new action figures. Uh, probably around 750 boxes have either been uh, delivered, sent, or are packed. And that's probably over a thousand figures because we're into the two packs now. People had ordered one of each. So, folks, stick with us. It won't be as long as it's been, as Mama Cornette used to say, uh, because I expect in the next four weeks we should be able to button up this backlog. Remember, there's no waiting at jimcornett.com for behind-the-curtain graphic novels, autographed pictures, T-shirts, and the like, because I don't have to actually unbox, sign, rebox, hand off, all this stuff. The Feather Bottoms take care of all these things. I sign everything, and they take it from there. But uh, jimcornett.com and uh, the Raw variant, the pink and red Raw debut variant, is almost gone. And we're down to the last... I'm going to less than 300. So if you're wanting one of these before Christmas, it ain't getting any quicker. <laughs> get your get your order in now and you'll be locked in thanks to the Feather Bottoms sorting system or for short. Um I'm trying to do these things mostly in order. So if you feel like you've waited a long time, nobody's jumped ahead of you. We just had a log jam at the beginning. JimCornette.com. That's right. Speaking of log jams at the beginning, we're still at the beginning of the show. Boy, I had here. a log jam at the beginning of this day. I'll tell you that. Shouldn't have had that peanut butter last night. Big log jam. You know, you know what a wind jammer is, don't you? I do. I've seen that video. I do. It's the agonizing screams of a trapped turd, according to Al Costello. Which Lance Russell found much funnier than I think anyone else in the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, because Lance, Lance was a, a fun guy with a great sense of humor. Well, Jim, speaking of a trapped turd, <laughs> Variety is reporting. Here's the headline. What? Wait, what? Variety? Variety is reporting. Now I can't he, say it without smiling he, because he of you. Snick sticks picks. <laughs> Variety is reporting Chris Jericho signs three-year AEW contract extension exclusive by Joe Otterson. Chris Jericho has signed a contract extension with All Elite Wrestling that will keep him with the company through December 2025. Variety has learned exclusively. 
In addition, Jericho will take on increased responsibilities behind the scenes. AEW, they left out the word in, in AEW, and will now serve as a producer and creative advisor in addition to continuing as a mentor to young talent. Oh boy. Let's stop there because there's a lot to unpack just there. Well, the the first thing I'm going to unpack is now that Variety, the show business Bible that has covered for over 100 years movies and television and all forms of entertainment is now reporting the signings and or goings on in professional wrestling is another sign that this business is irretrievably and irrevocably fucked. Well, it's more interesting. It's not that they're reporting it. It's that AEW and Chris Jericho fed it to them, giving them an exclusive so they would break it. That's the more interesting thing. They didn't want Sean Ross Sapp or Dave Meltzer or the Wrestling News to break this. They wanted someone outside of wrestling, a big entity, to break it so they had their PR person feed it to them. Right? That's what this is. What about Sports Illustrated or ESPN? Oh, come on. What does Sports Illustrated mean in 2022? We've seen the articles they put there. They basically just regurgitate any press release. Well, at least it would be regurgitation of something that would make wrestling look not like the phony bunch of bullshit they've turned it into. Nevertheless. Well, maybe I could change your mind. I have a quote here from Tony Khan. Oh, boy. Chris Jericho long ago cemented his legacy as one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time, and we're fortunate to have his skills, charisma, knowledge, and insights in AEW for years to come. Tony Khan said, CEO, GM, and head of creative of (laughs) AEW. Continuing on. Chris has discovered a fountain of youth this year, and he's having some of the very best matches of his legendary career against... He's drinking the blood of all the young wrestlers that he saps off of in order to stay on top. Well, that, there's only a track record of that. Is, I don't... Is, is that <laughs> there's a fountain. Is, is it one that, does he just step on a guy's toes and instantly the guy's blood shoots out of his nose and into Jericho's mouth? Or how is he draining? The, is it a, adrenochrome? Is that what the right wingers call that stuff? It's some kind of new technology where you stand really close to the person for as long as you can. He drains so much blood out of MJF, we're lucky that guy could fucking walk. He needs a transfusion. But let's go back to this quote from Tony Khan here. Uh, Chris discovered a fountain of youth, having the very best matches of his legendary career against some of the top names in wrestling. In expanding his responsibilities, he'll continue to... Wait, 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 let's... uh... So right now, I mean... He's 52 years old or whatever he is. So, yes, I don't know if he's Nick Bockwinkle, but he, he's lost weight. He he worked hard the other week because he's in Toronto, but we're now saying that he's having better matches against better guys now than he was 20 years ago when he was wrestling The Rock and Steve Austin. Well, I will continue with this quote from Tony Khan. In expanding his responsibilities, he'll continue to whisper in my ear. And also tell Mega everything he thinks. Oh, oh, sorry, that that wasn't there. He'll continue to serve as a valuable leader with our roster having the opportunity to utilize one of the most creative minds in the history of wrestling. And there's the problem, folks. Yeah. There are too many wrestlers. If Chris Jericho wants to do stupid shit with his whole career, at this point, it's done. That's what he's doing. He had a great run, and then there's just years of bullshit. But the fact that he talks to wrestlers 
and gives them his advice. And it's never, you've seen these press scrums, it's never, here's a way to look at it. He knows better than you. He has taken over from Cody Rhodes as the wrestling sage, Chris Jericho. He's the master thespian of wrestling now. He's taken over that role from Omega. He's taken all of these things, sucked the blood of everyone around him. And there are people, I remember Miro did an interview. He's like, oh, I'm so happy to have Chris Jericho to talk to. He has great ideas. No, Miro. He has horrible ideas. They only benefit him, and they usually cause the show to get worse. And that's the the issue is, I, obviously, with especially with what's happened, and who knows if any of these EVPs, or even who all was really EVPs, are coming back, and Tony needs talent, and he needs security, and he figured, I can buy security because I can sign all these guys up to long-term deals. He, Moxley is signed until he's 64. And will you still need me? Will you still feed me? Yes, he will be still needing you and feeding you when you're 64. And now he signed Jericho up as a wrestler. That's lovely. But unfortunately, so now Tony realizes he needs help and he's using the same judgment in looking for people to give him booking help as he did three years ago in judging who to get in business with, start the company. And look at that. One of them left, and all the other ones are suspended. Now he's going to a new bunch of people who have gotten in his ear like a fucking earwig out of an Edgar Allan Poe novel and is slowly eating his brain. And Jericho is, is like I said, I got no problem with him being a big-name wrestler. And Tony needs his big names, but yes. some of the young guys That's think right. that he can help them with these, these groups that he puts together that is to boost him and make him the center of attention and the programs that he puts together, which as we saw with MJF did nothing for MJF except take him out. That's the only time he's been exposed as somebody other than the MJF we know and love when he's singing and dancing and fucking doing tomfoolery with goddamn Jericho. For a year. So, for a year. And, and, and you've said it best, is that all of Chris's shit now looks like it should have been on Raw when Raw was even more hokey than it is right now. It just had bigger name talent. So, as you know, is there... I, f I sound like Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, are there no prisons, no workhouses, but are there no serious, legitimate, creative, modern wrestling minds? Oh, Gabe Sapolsky got away. He's back working for the evil empire. Oh, Hunter Johnston, I just saw Delirious is going to make his debut for MLW. Oh, really? I didn't see that. As a wrestler. Just because he booked the primary independent group for 10 fucking years straight knows all these guys and has a serious outlook on wrestling. Well, the, the twinkle toes and the Cucamonga kids didn't like that. I'm sure because they, he was the one reminding people probably in a lot of cases, Hey, these jolly jokers are hijacking our company and it's all about them. And what are we going to do if they go somewhere? But nevertheless, there are some people out there that could, but instead, let's just go to Chris 
insurrection kid Jericho to see if he can figure out a way to prop up his continuing midlife crisis by eating the bones and drinking the blood of some of the, I, there's the heat. Now Jericho and Moxley are going to get in a shoot over who gets to drink the blood of the young talent. Moxley only talks about it. Jericho lives on it. Difference. So there you go. But we have more from this article here. Uh-oh. Uh, Jericho was one of the original stars to sign with AEW and helping to launch the promotion, which included a six-month run as the inaugural AEW World Champion. Most recently, the wrestling legend won the Ring of Honor World Championship, with Khan having purchased Ring of Honor in May of 2022. It has his upcoming title defense here. In an interview with Variety, again, this was fed to Variety, Jericho had a simple answer as to why he has chosen to stick with AEW and sign the extension. Quote, I love the money, and Tony lets me do whatever I want. And Mega, oh, Mega, she's awesome. <laughs> now, hold on, let me go back to the quote here. I guess the simple answer is, why not? Things have been going so well in Wait, the company. Are you making this one up, too? No, this one's not made up. This is legitimate. Why did he sign the extension? I guess the simple answer is, why not? Things have been going so well in the company. I really do feel that this is my company. It's tattooed on my heart, so to speak. I've been here since day one, and there's really no reason not to be here continuing forward. When AEW first started... Wait, there's no reason not to be here continuing forward now that all four of them are suspended. When AEW... The only, the only people that could get over me in Tony's head. When AEW first started... I think basically it was Chris Jericho and a group of very talented people that may not have been as well known. Oh my God. Within three months that changed. And now within three years, we've got at least a dozen, maybe two dozen of our own homegrown stars that have come into their own on AEW television. Let's stop there yes, for a moment. They come into their own. We don't care what they do on their in their spare time, in their free time, just when they're on the job. They can come wherever they want to come, into their own or in somebody else's. The problem is if anyone there, and there are people, trust me, thinks that Jericho's a problem creatively, they know that it's going to be very tough to get Tony to believe that. Tony is hook, line, and sinker with Jericho right now. So now... If you're a young talent, you might not necessarily just be putting your hand, your career in the hands of Tony Khan, as we talked about, who would you want to work for, Tony Khan or Triple H? Now you might be putting your career in the hands of Tony Khan and Chris Jericho. Hey, here's an interesting question for you. Based on only what we have seen on TV and things that you and I know, who's responsible for what? Only based on that. Whose creative vision has a bigger WWE Monday Night Raw, 10 years ago feel. Chris Jericho or Triple H? Well, Chris Jericho. Because Triple H is not doing as much of, as we'll talk about, we saw some Raw here later on in the program from last night, but he's trying to take an eraser to Vince's silliness. This isn't this guy, it's his brother. Or this guy suddenly becomes the leader of a bunch of goddamn male models. Or something else happens completely out of character and the guy or girl goes out there trying to do it and looks like they want to jump off a fucking bridge. And this is the kind of stuff that 
Jericho was doing now there was the Jericho Appreciation Society and the guy's got a switchblade but it's a comb and and they're all childishly nattering at each other or the football field match or his dinner debonair all of his other creations that comes straight off of silly raw that Vince got a kick out of Jericho has proven incredibly popular with wrestling fans over the years due in no small part to his ability to reinvent himself and innovate within his character. Currently, he is going by the nickname The Ocho, <laughs> as the Ring of Honor Championship marks the eighth world championship he has held during his career. Here's more from Chris. Oh, good Lord. Also, one more thing. What the fuck? It used to be if you had four or five different gimmicks, catchphrases, uh, nom de plumes, in the course of three years, and you had switched back and forth from babyface to heel twice, that used to be a sign that people didn't know what the fuck to do with you. Not that you were constantly reinventing yourself. Go ahead. I wish Barry Darso had done interviews like this back in the day. <laughs> people don't understand I'm an artiste. I've reinvented myself. I was a Russian. I was a demolition man. I was a repo man. I was a golfer. I mean, he had more stupid gimmicks than anyone, but let's go back he to He was Chris. a trucker. That's right, he was a trucker. Was he a golfer? He was a golfer. He was a golfer. Here's Chris. I think evolving and always reinventing myself is what keeps me going. And now I have this freedom to be creative, to just do anything that I think is going to work. <laughs> I've never really had that before. I don't have to worry about anybody else's opinions. Obviously... Tony Conway's in from time to time, but oh, it's really just an open canvas to just paint whatever pictures that I want to paint. Oh my God. And can, that makes it so much more fun. Can, can you just throw me a hefty bag? I need to cover myself up because he's so full of himself. He's going to bust it to seams here in a second. <laughs> oh. I have never really... <laughs> Such insufferable <laughs> egotism, and especially again, it's a big deal that he's getting to him that it's he's getting written up in Variety instead of goddamn ESPN or Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It's Variety because that's all he, he he thinks he's an actor, he thinks he's a rock star, he thinks he's in showbiz, and he wants to ass off like the young kids do, and that's the whole problem. And that he legitimately thinks that his fucking evil continued evolution and all that stuff is so thrilling and now he just can paint anything i've got a song i want to sing and i'm gonna sing it fuck can you imagine with no boundaries on any kind of logic and common sense and tony not having any fucking balls whatsoever what he might be capable of on television good god in terms of his role within AEW, Jericho compares himself to hockey great Gordy Howe, who played at the top levels of the sport into his 50s. Swami's also barking at the mailman. <laughs> he also says that he considers himself an elder statesman of the locker room and spends most of his time at AEW working with other, less established talent on their he, matches and offering tips on how they can improve. He he considers himself an elder statesman and spends most of his time in AEW in an elder state. And now he finally explains booking here at the end. Oh finally, boy. Jericho addressed his hopes for his run as Ring of Honor champion 
stating that he wants to make the belt the most prestigious in the business behind only the AEW World Championship. Here's a quote. It's very simple. I've said I want to desecrate the legacy of Ring of Honor. Well, who's going to stop me from doing that? We haven't found out yet. But when it happens, suddenly they slayed the dragon and they become a bigger star as a result. Oh, good Lord. Oh, good. And that's the end of this article, Fed to Variety from Chris Jericho and AEW. What are your overall thoughts about Chris Jericho and certainly how Chris Jericho perceives Chris Jericho? I don't, what is he, I don't know whether he has perception or not. Going to make the Ring of Honor, I didn't even think when we actually had a company called Ring of Honor, and I was involved with it, that we were going to make the Ring of Honor world title the most prestigious world championship in the business. And, and the reason for that, number one, is because we weren't going to put the WWE out of business, nor over and encompass their championship nor is chris or aew but again he's convinced that he can do well one thing he can do is he can tell tony yeah bring a bunch of people in and i'll beat them all over and over again and i will never lose and then finally at some point i'll lose and then they've slayed the dragon and they'll be so over but meanwhile he will do it in such a way that it's forgettable at best. And, oh, there, I, mean, I did the job. But nobody's going it, to, it's not like anybody's going to get over winning the Ring of Honor world title on AEW television from Chris Jericho after he's beaten a bunch of other people that Tony brings in simply for the task of doing a job for Chris Jericho. Because people don't know who the fuck they are either. Chris Jericho has become every wrestler he complained about in WCW as being an old person holding down young wrestlers. The only difference is he's older than they were. Good point. Because they were all in their 40s at the time that he was complaining about. Well, there it is. We're not going to be rid of Chris Jericho anytime soon. And of course, this is the kind of thing that could really make a wrestling fan feel down. And perhaps they want someone to talk to. You know, the thing is, Brian, a lot of people these days, everybody's got troubles. Everybody's got problems, issues, sometimes subscriptions. But a lot of people focus on the problem instead of the solution. If you're focused on the problem, well, I've got bricks falling off a cliff onto my head. And if you just focus on that, then you forget to move. So you got you to gotta start Focusing on solving the problems instead of the problems themselves. How might this or that situation go better with a different mindset, a different look at it? Maybe another set of eyeballs on it. Sometimes you got to bounce things off of somebody when faced with any kind of challenge in life. And you will learn how to find your own solutions. And there's no better feeling than that. So if you're stuck in a situation where you can't see the solutions because of the problems and somebody else needs to give you a different viewpoint that's where the folks at better help come in because that's online therapy accessible affordable convenient you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey you can switch therapists at any time and it's all done online in whatever manner you'd like to do whether it be chat or video or skype or Zoom, or all of the other one-word contraptions that the young folks use these days. But 
They can take a look at it and tell you whether they can help you become a better problem solver. You can visit betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash J-C-E today and get 10% off your first month's services. Betterhelp.com slash J-C-E. 10% off your first month's services. Brian, I think, well, you ought to get on BetterHelp, but I think you ought to actually have your own full-time staff of therapists, 24-7 and eight-hour shifts. Nah, that's all right. Because you got a lot going on. I do. How am I going to talk to all these people for all that time? Well, you got to talk to them about all the things you have going on. It would stop me from taking care of all the things going on. Well, all right, folks. However, if I had the time... If you've got the time and you don't have things going on, but you've got things going on, well, then talk to people about those things that you have going on at BetterHelp.com. Dot com. That's right. Well, Jim, let's uh, help the listeners with some more questions here. And I guess let's get any reviews out of the way. As we are recording today, last night was Monday Night Raw. Once again, escaping from whatever facility they were in. How much of Raw did you get to watch? Well, I I got the high points is what I did. And by then, tell the people what we're going to do again because we're 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 attuned to the the news that breaks instantly. We're going to do our show today. We're going to talk about Raw and because AEW Dynamite will air on Tuesday tonight, we're going to come back tomorrow morning and we're going to put an addendum an addendum on this program with with whatever happened both on AEW and actually if somebody said that uh, they thought that they wanted in the WWE, they want NXT to win the ratings battle tonight. So I'm thinking that they may go ahead and shove a hand grenade up somebody's ass on NXT and pull the pin tonight because that's the only way they're probably going to – because that show is – my God, I wish somebody, when I'm watching it, would hit me in the head so I could see some stars. Is tonight Braun Breaker versus Ilya Dragunov? Well, I haven't heard that that was going to happen. If if it does, I may have to watch that, because Valter and Ilya was actually the best all-around wrestling match of modern times. So let's see what Ilya can do with Braun. Here's the lineup for tonight's show. Uh, no, it, <laughs> I guess it's not. Is this accurate? Here's the lineup for the show. The schi- is this real life? The schism will face uh, Joe Gacy, Rip Fowler, and Jagger Reed. Oh will face Cameron Grimes, Luke Gallows, and Carl Anderson. Alba Fire versus Sonya Deville. I don't know who these people are. Channing Stacks Lorenzo <laughs> versus an opponent of Tony D'Angelo's choosing. Roxanne Perez versus Rhea Ripley. And finally, Cora Jade versus Raquel Rodriguez. I thought I saw Braun Breaker versus Ilya, but I guess not. I'm sure Halloween Havoc is coming up. And then with they AEW, do something like that every year. With AEW, we have Hangman versus Moxley in Cincinnati. That's going to have a little bit more interest than Alba Fire and Joe Pesci or whoever the fuck else was Tony D'Angelo, whatever else is going on. Well, once again, you did watch some of Raw. Yes, yes. That's where I, w- I was just trying to get you, since it's your program, to tell the people what we're doing here today. And 
they're trying with this program. This, what this is, is ladies and gentlemen, and I think we're going to be seeing it for a little while. This is the beginning of the new series from the WWE, Bad Gimmick Rehab on the Home and Garden Network. Each episode, they're going to take one or two bad gimmicks that were put on these poor, unsuspecting, innocent wrestler victims, and they're going to rehab that gimmick and try to make people forget that it ever happened because the only person behind it was poor Vince who had lost his his faculties and had apparently chewing gum and oatmeal where his brain matter used to reside. So we're going we're gonna to see a few revamps, but they're trying again right off the bat. We talk about in the past the show just it's fucking 10 minutes before the anything gets said or anything gets done. It just goes so slow and it's three hours. So they go all the way in the other direction. As soon as the show comes up, no open, whatever they're in the ring with Bobby Lashley calling out Brock Lesnar, get your ass out of here. Why I oughta. And they play Brock's music out. He comes in street clothes. Now, again, you're going to hear this as a recurring theme in a few of these segments in this program, they're trying. So I'm not going to bring up that. Has it ever been just sanctioned or should it ever be sanctioned that a guy can just call another guy? You just go out, take over the show, call another guy out. The guy comes out, they fight. Nobody's there's no organization here. There's no administration. There's nobody running the program. The inmates just call out and make their own shit. Is this something that apparently the WWE audience just accepts now after they've seen it for so long and they're not going to try to get back to logic or legitimacy, even when they're trying to rehab these bad gimmicks? Am I looking for too much detail here? You're looking for detail that should be there. I think it's a lot to ask that they'll all of a sudden start doing things like that the right way, but who knows? Over time, maybe, but certainly right now, while things are not federated in the former federation, you see what happens. So here comes Brock out, and Bobby rolls out, and they lock up in the aisleway there, and they have a big fight, and Lashley spears Brock through the barricade, which... And again, boy, that was impressive. And it's Brock Lesnar being speared all the way through a barricade by a fucking beast the size of Bobby Lashley that had Brock up off the ground. If I didn't see that same thing done every goddamn week on television, that would be the greatest thing I ever saw because these two are the ones that need to be doing it. But now it's like, and it's always in the same place. Funnily enough, I don't know how that coincidence happens, but it was great. I'm Again, they're trying, but a lot of this stuff is what I'm saying. How many times have I said in the past when you really need something, when interest is down, business is down, nobody's over, it's kind of lackluster, you got to do things to shock people and to get, oh, wow, did you see that? But the problem is, if you do it all the time and with the wrong people or middle card people or just people at random, 
then it's not the same thing when you see these two goddamn big top stars doing it. You're like, oh, yeah, they did that last week. Mm. Okay, but through the barricade, and then, again, they're trying, but instantly, 30 people arrive. Adam Pierce, security, guys out of the locker room, of various producers and whatever. Okay, I'm always complaining that nobody comes out try to break this shit up. But then they do a deal where a guy stands in the ring all by himself and blatantly calls another guy out to fight. The other guy gets music played for him and comes out there and they get in a fight and there's nobody on the scene whatsoever until they go through the barricade and then 30 of them are there at the same time. And then while they're trying to pull him apart, Lashley spears Brock over the desk and put, gives him a spine buster through the desk, which again looked great. Two big guys, a great fight, and chaos with all the people out there. They're trying. And he left Brock selling, which he almost had to do because of the fact that Brock pretty much punked him out the other day. So the action was great. The fact that they did it right off the bat on the show was great. They're, they're you know, being penalized by the fact that all this shit's been overdone to the point where they can't really physically do anything that people haven't seen anymore, so they just try to do it the same thing better or with bigger stars. Um, And I... <laughs> I'd work on dialing back the security to like 10 or 12 guys that come out in dribbles and drabs like they just realized what was going on and maybe tighten up the goddamn presentation by having Lashley storm out and take over and the announcers talk about, oh my God, he can't do this instead of, well, he said this, what he's going to do. So like it's something that's happening all at once and getting away from everybody so they take a minute to react and that's when everybody gets their damage done. But again, I'm I'm being too... Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more effective to have like 12 people run out all at once like they're standing in the back singing doo-wop or something waiting for things to happen. That's more realistic. Well, that... You know, I've tried to have that many guys show up in the same place at the same time and had meetings about it and still couldn't. And they would never get there. And suddenly they've got them. It was like they shot them out of a, they slid down a fireman's pole, like a goddamn fire department. They certainly are trying to establish a tone. On SmackDown, they began with that whole parking lot car accident thing with McIntyre and Cross. And now they begin hot with this. They're trying to really heat things up to get people, I guess, to pay attention to the new management of the company. Well, yes. And, and I don't blame them. And, and they should. And, you know, it's Triple H is hearkening back to the Attitude Era where you never knew where something was going to happen or not. Whether somebody's going to get in a fight or get in a car wreck or whatever. But the problem is, ladies and gentlemen, God, if only somebody had predicted this, the reason why it got over then is because people had never seen shit like that. Now they've been seeing it for 20 years. And they've been seeing it with talent that isn't as good as the talent they first saw it done with 20 years ago so it has less impact it will juice up the 
you know, the, the, the show and it'll make it a little easier to watch for the people already there. But they've jaded a lot of these people, but like me, like me, the point where I can't, every time I see more shit, like the same shit we see every week, I roll my eyes. Do you think that's the toughest thing mentally for a booker to recognize when to dial it back or to dial it back? Well, this is not even about a booker or one. Yes, occasionally in the territories, you know, it was. Dusty did it where, you know, you need to take a breath here and, you know, that could happen. But who booked for 25 years? Nobody. They they hit on the idea of doing every goddamn thing (laughs) in the Attitude Era that had ever been done before and doing it all again, plus coming up with new shit and doing that, too with the best talent, best group of talent that had ever been assembled in both companies. And then as that talent matriculated to movies and old age, they've been doing the same kind of shit and coming up with even more special effects ridden shit to to where we've seen people burned alive and run over with 18 wheelers and you know, buried alive and flung off roofs into rivers. See, they've killed every angle. And and it's not even if people are going to believe the ad that what, what used to draw money about an angle was the fact that the fans thought that someone had been wronged, injured, or screwed around. Well, they know that's not the case anymore because this is all a scripted, dramatic fucking presentation with elements of comedy. So now it basically has to be, well, was this angle visually impressive enough that it might get people to want to see the match because they don't believe anybody's really hurt or offended? And how much more visually impressive can you get than fucking burning a fucking motherfucker alive? So what else are they going to do to anybody? They're going to spear them through the barricade twice a fucking show. That's what I'm saying. That's what I've been saying for 20 fucking years. That sooner or later we would get to this point. What else are you going to do to a motherfucker's human body to be visually impressive when they know that it's all bullshit and nobody was really harmed, hurt, screwed, cheated, robbed, or embarrassed? Except when they really do get hurt, trying to make people believe something they don't believe anyway. Do you, Let's go one, ahead. One last question on this: Do you think this justifies the way Lashley got beat down last week? Uh, I don't know if it justifies it. It it explains it in because in the mind of the people who want to do what they did last week, well, then next week Lashley's going to come out and leave him laying. So that justifies it in their mind. And I, I, I still think that Lashley has been unfortunately diminished by not being in the hurt business with MVP to talk so that they didn't leave Bobby Twiston trying to be a, you know, an order of raconteur. That's not his fucking line of work. I think it was great when they had a group of guys so Lashley could be the star and Cedric and Shelton could be the the Usos. 
Yeah, you know, breaking up the Hurt Business has not worked out for anyone who was in the Hurt Business. No. It's bad for business. But so I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know but whether I would have flip-flopped these because everybody expects, because he's the biggest star in the business, Brock Lesnar, to beat up Bobby Lashley, but maybe people wouldn't have expected Bobby Lashley to beat up Brock Lesnar. So maybe Brock's shocking return, the shocking thing about it was he'd come out all smiles like we last saw him and Lashley'd fucking sodomize him with a muffler off a fucking 56 Chevy. And then Brock comes back and gets even. Now he's still a baby face. You got Lashley as a fucking heel where he ought to be. Instead, now they love Brock and he was the baby face, but now he's come back and switched heel apparently by just suckering and attacking Bobby Lashley for whatever fucking reason. Except the people cheered him because they still like him. And meanwhile, poor Bobby is a god. It looks like a Greek god, and he's stuck trying to act like an ice cream man. I don't fucking know. Can we move on? Yeah, was that raw? I guess it's more. How much more raw is there? Yeah, about three hours, <laughs> two hours and 55 minutes of raw is still left to go. So after that, um, here comes AJ Styles and Luke Gallows and Carl Anderson. The original club. Let it go. When I couldn't have the Midnight Express and Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I didn't call another team the Afternoon Express or the Morning Express or the Daily Bugle or whatever. The I just changed the goddamn to Stop and Go Express. Come and go. I just changed the fucking team name entirely. The club is over. And I'm not talking about overpopular. I'm talking about overdone with. Who gives a shit? What is the, to a modern WWE audience, what does the original club mean? They even say the, the OC, and they have on the, the Titantron, the only club that matters. What? What are the dues? Do you get a, a card? Do you have to wear a t-shirt? The whole club. You have to be a part in the you have to be a part of the most boring and lame wrestling faction ever, but it's in Japan. Well, and that's the thing. They, they're, they're trying to refer to something that got over it. And as AEW has proven to the WWE, I would think by this point, that a wrestling promotion cannot exist or subsist just on the amount of Japanese wrestling fans there are in the United States of America. And this was a bunch of different people in the bullet club that they don't have the trademark to. So they try instead of doing their own fucking thing in the biggest promotion in the world that dwarfs new Japan by multiple times, they still want to be the original club and do Hall and Nash's fucking Wolfpack too sweet bullshit. Why do why do other people shit? Why talk about something that you were once a, a replacement part in, not even an original part of the fucking thing? Do other people's hand signs from twenty five years ago when they're st they're doing biographies on A and E Network on the motherfuckers that you stole the fucking hand sign from? 
So are you a tribute act? Are you a cover band? I don't, I don't, why do other more famous people shit? Why call yourself, hamper yourself, hamstring yourself with a fucking name, the original club that nobody in today's modern day and age that wasn't watching the Bullet Club seven years ago or whenever the fuck it was understands a shit to begin with. And I said, well, when they bring in Gallows and Anderson, at least we won't have to look at fucking Otis and Gable. And guess who they wrestle? Gallows and Anderson wrestle Otis and Gable. The OC versus the new club. I'd like to take a club <laughs> and beat them all over the head with it. All of them? All of them. Every single one of them. <laughs> and then go back and, and hit the places I missed. <laughs> so... <laughs> Gallows and Anderson win the match, and then here comes the Judgment Day. And I think they think that it's good television writing when they have one segment flow into another like that, but that means that you're seeing the same people involved in something out there for fucking 30 minutes at a time. So the Judgment Day come out, and they do the same thing I just did. They made fun of Too Sweet. Same old shit. We've seen it before. But then Finn Balor is taking credit for Star. Was he in the original Bullet Club? He was. Okay. He, he was then, the original leader of the Bullet Club. Okay, that's right. He was the original one. And then somehow it was like the NWO in, in the dying days of WCW, and they let everybody, including Virgil, in. They let the Cucamonga kids in, and they let everybody in, right? What happened was all the prestigious leaders of the Bullet Club, one by one, got signed by American promotions like WWE or later AEW, so they would leave their group, they'd have to find a new leader, went from Finn to AJ to Omega, and then they started just filling the ranks with seemingly anyone who just wanted to mug for the camera and do someone else's hand signs. Okay, well, anyway, he's mad because he started the thing, but now they've actually got a cool group, even though Finn doesn't belong in it. So they're in a cool group now, the Judgment Day. Priest does the best talking to represent these people. And uh, it sounds like he has a man's voice. They made a challenge for a match at Crown Jewel. And uh, again... Because you don't want to have an evil authority figure doesn't mean that you shouldn't have somebody to make these fucking matches. And Adam Pierce was doing it for a while there, but now the guy's just, well, I want to fight you in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Can you imagine if Ali and Frazier put the fucking Thrilla and Manila on that fucking way? Oh, I'll fight you. Okay, Tuesday. We'll we'll be there in Manila, the Philippines. There's contracts. There's promotion. There's all... If you're... Don trying King. To, Don King. If you're trying in any way to make this look legitimate... Ah, God damn it. So now they, they all just make their own matches. And then Dominic and AJ go back and forth. And AJ challenges Dominic for tonight. And Rhea accepts for him, and we're 30 minutes into the show. And that's all we've seen besides that three-minute fight at the top of the program is tag team match and talking. I was already getting sick of the Judgment Day a little bit, even though I really like I really like Priest and Rhea and Dominic together. They all have got size. There's an age difference that's obvious. The whole Dominic's fucking Rhea thing is working. Yeah. He seems like a different guy, but if you want to make me really sick of them, Put them with AJ and the fucking OC. 
That is a way to drive people to jump off their roof. Oh, my God. Well, speaking of jumping off the roof, I said we're half an hour into the show, and we've just done a lot of talking. So here comes Seth Franklin Rollins, and he comes to the ring and does a lot more talking. And he goes for about five minutes, and then suddenly here comes Mustafa Ali. Again, didn't they bring him out and do something with him for about three weeks, about six months ago? And I was saying the same thing. What the fuck? They think this guy's going to get over? And then he disappeared again? Well, what happened was he had disappeared and then he had asked for his release publicly. And a lot of people got behind him and then they said no. That's right. And then he just returned. And for a few weeks, they used him like a putz. And then I don't remember seeing him for a little while. I don't know what he's been doing. Maybe he has been there and I just haven't been watching. But now he's doing something with Franklin Rollins. Well, so this is obviously more Triple H bad gimmick rehab because Vince probably brought him back to fucking beat shit out of him because he asked for his release and then sent him back home again. But now he's coming back to beat some people up, apparently. Except, uh, unfortunately, it's not working out for him. Mustafa Ali comes out. He looks like the popcorn guy picked up a microphone on the way from the concession stand and just said, hey, I wonder if anybody will notice if I get in a ring and just act like I'm a wrestler. And he is upset that because he was next in line or supposed to be for a championship opportunity. So apparently nobody's told him you can speak English on his program now, again. So finally... Seth Rollins beats him up. <laughs> Apparently, it's this guy's gimmick. He comes out and mouths off about once or twice every six months and somebody kicks the shit out of him. Uh, so then we went to Sky and Kai. Or did we determine that the team was Kai and Sky? That's it. Kai and Sky. Sky and Kai works too. With Bailey against Bianca Belair and Candy LaRue. And... <sighs> Bailey did color while Kai and Sky wrestled. And I'm I'm sorry. It's it's an hour into the program, and we're seeing three anorexic five-foot-tall indie girls and Bianca Belair. And I don't know why they've put Bailey. Remember what I said? Bailey could be great dressed up in that suit and doing that smart ass interview she's got leading some of the top heel girls. The phrase top heel girls apparently didn't register with whoever when they took this idea and ran with it. And Candy is so emaciated when she hits the ropes, they don't bend. Have you noticed that? I didn't notice too much about any of this match, no. Exactly. So here comes the best part of the program. <laughs> JBL has showed up in his limousine with his horns and his license plate and out he comes to the ring and he gets a big response because you know he's a hall of famer and blah 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 whose suit was he wearing i think it must have been kurgan's suit that Howard <laughs> Brody had cleaned and forgot to return to him i don't know what maybe something needed to be altered and they mixed some i don't know what happened there because jbl's a successful guy and he doesn't have to work another day in his life he's got plenty of money he can afford a custom tailored suit this wasn't it maybe since he's been a wrestling gimmick that he's just been working out or something and he's lost weight and and you know he just <laughs> he just looked a little 
Whatever the case. Anyway. Some people thought he may have become a big fan of the talking heads. <laughs> Stop making sense. Anyway, so this, again, he acknowledged the people's cheers and etc., and then went right into a fucking, the best heel promo, the most natural. He's got the personality, the delivery, the material. It was all off top of his head because he buried Oklahoma and praised Texas. Like, if you know anybody from Oklahoma and Texas, that's all they do. The Briscoes and the Funks, get them in the same room. Or fucking JR and goddamn anybody. And this was fucking brilliant. He looks like, except for the suit, he looks like a star. He comes off like he's a great personality. And then he makes a big announcement. He has brought a superstar to Raw, and here comes Baron Corbin. And I'm like, what in the... JBL is a great promo, but can even he get Baron Corbin over? But it's not happy Corbin anymore. They're trying. It's Baron Corbin. And we've got to figure out, were we even watching? We we were watching the show right as they were turning him into homeless Corbin, and then he became happy Corbin. But did we ever just actually see a Barrett? And before that, he was the Possum King, That's King right. Corbin. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Have we ever just seen Baron Corbin try to be serious? I've seen him as Baron Corbin going back to NXT. I don't know how much of that you would have seen. Well, anyway. Because originally uh, he was a serious guy. You know, originally he was, you know, because he's a tall guy. They kind of made him a killer in NXT. And then Vince got a hold of him. <laughs> and uh, his gear still looks horrendous. I don't know what the fuck, because he's so... He's so hairless. He looks like some kind of mole creature that what? lives under lives underground <laughs> and has no hair. And it just, I don't know, but his gear looks horrendous, which accentuates the paleness and lack of features he has. There's no, I don't know. He seems to have lost weight. He's tried to get in better shape, maybe. His work, some of it looked okay. He did a head palm shoot off. Uh, but he threw a nice punch. I don't know. His his physical appearance to me is odd and off-putting. I don't know how to explain it. But it was a long match with Dolph Ziggler that he had that he won and kind of flat with his finish, but the best thing was JBL's color. At one point, the new announcer, Kevin Patrick, the uh, the, the the fellow from Ireland or Scotland or somewhere over there. He's very nice. He's, he's very, very, very chipper chap. Corey Graves is all like this, and the other guy just wants to tell you what's going yeah. on. <laughs> and Bradshaw said, Kevin, I don't know who hired you, but it's like losing five good men. <laughs> oh, fuck, that was great. That's a good line. And <laughs> and then, you know, when they, they started talking about, well, so-and-so has the experience, and he did this and that, and it's like... <sighs> I've been waiting for somebody to say this, and Bradshaw did. When these guys brag about, well, I've been in the independents for 10 or 15 years. He said, yeah, you spend 10 years in the independents. You were stuck in the minor leagues. You're playing single-A ball. What the hell? 
That's not something to brag about. Anyway, by the time this match was over, we were an hour and 40 minutes into this television program. <sighs> and then, remember AJ Styles had challenged Dominic Mysterio. So now here comes AJ Styles and Gallows and Anderson and Dominic and Rhea and Priest and Balor. The same group of visitors that we spent the first half hour of the program with have come back. It's like you spend the evening with the next door neighbors. They leave. You're just tidying up and getting ready to take your pants off and sit in your underwear and put your hand down your crotch. And they're knocking on the door to come back in and visit some more. This was the part of the show that drove me off. I didn't come back after this segment. I'll say this. The Judgment Day looks great together. They need somebody interesting to work with now. And finally, Dominic won this match. They had a... And, and Dominic, is he doesn't suck. He'd be upper echelon in AEW. Physically, he doesn't suck. We mentioned he looked a little childish, and they're trying to age him a little bit. I bet real make him grow up real fast. But finally, Dominic won with a roll-up after the other guys had gotten an argument on the floor. Rhea grabs AJ's leg. He turns around and looks at her, and Dominic rolls him up one, two, three. So that was kind of flatter than a plate full of piss, but got the point across. And I know, when you tuned out, did you come back for the big, long-awaited grudge match between The Miz and Dexter Loomis? No, when I tuned out, I did not come back. That's what oh, happens. Sometimes when all. you put bad shit on a show, it makes people say, you know what? I've given up for the night. Well, let me tell you what you missed. Because all night long, Miz had been selling a slip and fall, like fucking Better Call Saul, so that he doesn't have to wrestle Dexter Loomis in this match they've got because he's scared of Dexter Loomis. Well, but old jo I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to jump in because I didn't. we didn't talk about this throughout the entire show so far. This was another one of the things that actually drove me off was Gargano all over this fucking show doing skits in the back. Yes. Yes. Because Miz, again, was selling the slip and fall. Oh, my knee's bad. I'm hurt. Do the surgery now. I can't wrestle tonight. Oh, my God. What's going to become of me? And at one point, old Johnny Sameface just comes into the trainer's room and yells, Hey, there's Dexter Loomis! And... Fucking Miz just jumps up on his feet like nothing's wrong. And then all night, you see them, the two of them, the two, the two poster boys for we're going to push these motherfuckers regardless that they have no fucking look, charisma, talent, ability, personality. But we're going to fucking shove them down your throat. Miz, the previous generation. Johnny, same face, the current generation. They're talking to each other all night. And then finally, Loomis comes out. He does his entrance. He comes out. They don't have a stage. He's just on the in front of the big screen. And suddenly, from behind comes the Miz with a chair and hits Loomis three times with the chair. And Loomis goes down and then... then Miz hits the floor next to Loomis five more times. I think even Mick Foley tweeted, a lot of daylight in those chair shots. 
he was actually just hitting the floor on the other side of Loomis with the top of the chair and the camera, annoying camera zoom in and out was supposed to cover it, but it didn't. And then he did the worst, sloppiest Dennis Condry face buster that he stole from Dennis ever, ever on the chair to Loomis. And then that was it. That's that match. So there you go. Other, hey, go ahead. I was just thinking, and I guess maybe also Rollins and Ali. I was going to say, other than Lashley and Lesnar, is every feud on Raw with someone who was in Triple H's NXT versus someone who wasn't? Possibly. Possibly. All right. You know who else is back? No. Do you do you remember Ezekiel and and his his brother Elrod and the brother Elias, of course. Well, he he was gone. We were just we were seeing Ezekiel and then Elrod. Well, Elias is back. The lights are dimmed. They come up on the ring, and there is Elias in the ring. And he says, You can't imagine how glad I am to be back. Little double entendre there. And he comments on unfortunately his younger brother's career was cut tragically short kind of few snickers and again it's bad gimmick rehab they are actually having they have put themselves into well vince put them into position where they're actually having to come out and basically in their own way apologize to people and say no we're not going to do this anymore here we're back to the way it's supposed to be we're sorry for the jarring and disconcerting Weeks we put you through where you didn't understand what the fuck was going on. Bobby Ewing in the shower. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 embarrassing. But nevertheless, as soon as he starts, here comes Matt Riddle. And I'm saying, oh, my God, now, wait a minute. I thought Elias was supposed to be a baby face. But apparently they believe that Matt Riddle is so popular that he'll give poor Elias, who's been out there exposed like an idiot as Ezekiel and Elrod, that he'll give Elias a little rub because Riddle's so popular. So they have them do some comedic banter and interplay because Riddle has brought bongos out. Now, Elias is in the ring. By the way, I'm sure he would have been back quicker, but he had to actually grow a beard. He couldn't just fucking come back and kick the shit out of somebody else and say, fuck it, I'm not doing that anymore. He had to grow a beard before he could be Elias. So Elias is in front of keyboards and he's got guitars leaned up and Riddle brings out some bongos and wants to play with him. So you want to, you want to hit my bong, bro? That's not, that's not a double entendre there. It's, it was just specifically to make Riddle sound like a stoner, but there was no witticism there because it's a bongo, not a bong. Anyway, So they did this comedic interplay where Elias promised Riddle that sometime they could play together, and that pleased Riddle and warmed the cockles of his heart. And so he just sat there cross-legged in the ring and watched Elias as Elias started on the keyboard to play a new song that he's written. Now this is where I was hoping, Brian, that you had hung in there because. I'm, I've I've listened to a lot of music, but I've never played any nor written any. 
So I'm sort of in the position that Tony Khan is in as a wrestling booker. I've watched it on TV, but I never actually did it. So I was hoping you could tell me whether Elias, because he did a better job than I could do playing the keyboard. Because I can't play the keyboard. The only musical instrument I can play is the radio. But I was hoping you would be able to tell me whether he actually did a good job at it for anybody or just a good job for somebody that can't do it at all. Because it wasn't, I, I didn't get the Liberace, Elton John in the early 70s, you know, fucking Jerry Lee Lewis kind of vibe from him on the keyboard. Did you get a Gene Okerlund kind of vibe from him on the keyboard? No, not even a Tutti Frutti kind of thing. But he's playing the keyboard, and guess who comes out? Who comes out after Riddle already came out? Yes, yes. I don't know. Seth Franklin Rollins. Oh, no. Because Seth Franklin Rollins is in the main event that they're going to flow right into for the U.S. title with Matt Riddle. So as Seth Franklin Rollins comes out, well, again, then it's time for Elias to go, and they go to break, and they come back, and now Riddle's still there. And have we not seen this match like eight fucking times recently? Yeah, they just had a feud. Well, they're, it's, they're still pissed. Nothing's been settled. So Elias went down to ringside, by the way. I should say he did stick around. He didn't just leave, but he acquiesced and gave up his his status in the ring for all of this. So they have this match. And by the way, uh, uh, Patrick, the new announcer, um, has noted that the United States title was first won by Harley Race in 1975. So they're using, I guess they have been, the Greensboro lineage for the United States title because they absorbed it from WCW, right? Be more fitting if they used the Sheik lineage. That would be funny, but but here's where I was going with this. Okay, if they're using the Greensboro lineage for the Crockett United States title, Harley Race won the tournament in the Greensboro Coliseum in 1975, right? We know that much. So that's the lineage they're using. Do you know who else's careers that that United States title that was first won by Harley Race in Greensboro in 1975, whose careers it has helped launch? Oh, Ric Flair, Rick Steamboat. I mean, just those are the first two in the 70s I can think of. Okay, well, according to, to Patrick, it was Ric Flair, Steve Austin, and John Cena. Really? Tell me when Steve Austin would have ever been the United States champion. In 1994? Thought he was the TV champion. He was the TV champion first when he got there. He had a feud with Wyndham. He had some great matches with Barry Wyndham on TV. Well, out of nowhere, two out of three falls matches. And then in 94, he feuded with Steamboat. I think that was over the U.S. title. So it did launch his career. It launched him right out the door of WCW. He was fired right after he was the, <laughs> the U.S. champion. It launched his career in the sense that he had already been a champion, been in the Dangerous Alliance, and been in the Hollywood Blondes. Other than that, okay. it launched his career. So anyway, in this match, finally both Riddle and Rollins were down, and Seth rolls out to the floor where Elias is standing there awkwardly. Because now... Here's what they've done. As both guys in the match are down and Seth rolls out on the floor to try to get some space and recuperate, but now the floor camera is framing Seth and Elias 
in the picture, even though Elias is just standing there and hadn't done anything and hadn't been referred to by Seth or whatever at that point, when they frame both the guys in the picture, you know something's going to happen between them, right? And of course, guess what? After a while, they just stood there. And as I said, uh, poor Elias stood there awkwardly. And then Seth has said, hit me, hit me. So he's asking Elias, this big, giant, 260-pound fucking guy standing next to him to punch him in the face so that he can get disqualified against Matt Riddle, who was at that point laying on his face in the fucking ring, selling. <laughs> okay, hit me, hit me, but Elias won't hit him. So then fucking Seth Franklin Rollins says, well, fuck you then, and he super kicks Elias. Boom. And at that point, he goes back in the ring, but Riddle takes back over. And he starts doing some shit to Seth Franklin Rollins. But then finally, Riddle goes for the RKO. But just at this point, Elias has got up from that one super kick about 45 seconds ago. And he comes in the ring to kick the shit out of Seth Franklin Rollins. And Seth Franklin Rollins pushes Matt Riddle into Elias. Boom! And they collide. And then he hits Riddle with the curb stomp, one, two, three. And then he curb stomps Elias. And then he goes to curb stomp Matt Riddle again, and guess who shows up, Brian? Who shows up to save Matt Riddle from Seth Rollins? Who shows up to save both Matt Riddle and Elias from... Seth Franklin Rollins. Seth Franklin Rollins. Uh, who have we not seen on the show this week? It wouldn't be a main eventer like Roman Reigns. I'm not sure. Mustafa Ali! Oh, that's a surprise. The same guy <laughs> that got the shit kicked out of him earlier came back out, and this time he kicked the shit out of Seth Franklin Rollins, and Seth ran through the crowd away from ringside to get away from the vengeful clutches of Mustafa Ali. So they're going to try to get this guy over in a top spot. He's running off Seth Rollins. And this, again, what the fuck? He's six inches shorter, 30 pounds lighter, and he was he was dressed like he was delivering newspapers for his fucking kid. There you go. That's a surprise. I mean, I understand gimmick rehab, and a lot of that's happening right now, but have people seen him as a main eventer? Again, I haven't followed his career, Mustafa Ali, too closely. Do people see him as a main eventer? Well, I, I mean, somebody sees somebody somewhere as a main eventer, no matter who they are. The question is, how many? And I would say that the the odds are pretty good that that's a small number. Well, that was raw, as raw as it gets. It sure was. And we'll do some more program, and then we'll come back later on in the uh, episode here, and we'll talk about how AEW manages to offend us later on tonight. Well, Jim, as this is my show, I'm going to commandeer it and take it back over here. And a very popular topic in the last week, week and a half, and we haven't talked about it for no other reason than we just haven't talked about it. Have you been following, I guess, what started with Ariel Hawani doing an interview with Tony Khan? And then led to Ariel Hawani talking about his frustrations with the interview. And then a lot of backlash all of a sudden against Ariel Hawani for saying these things. <laughs> Have you followed any of this? 
I I haven't been following them. They, you know, they they don't need to turn me in. I haven't been following them. I was minding my own business. They passed me by. Um, all I know is Ariel Hawani, obviously, is um, is what you would term a mainstream level sports reporter, right? He does MMA. He's he he's not a guy that does a wrestling site or you know, just uh, confines himself to reporting on wrestling. He's a sports guy, right? He's been on ESPN or what? I never listen to him, but I don't listen to anybody. But he's recognized. I've heard the name a million times. Arguably, he's the most recognized MMA journalist out there. And he's done a lot of things over the years. I believe the show this interview was on was the MMA Hour. So that tells you where the priorities for the program are. But he's always been a wrestling fan. Well, yes, but I'm saying it's not that he's just not some jack-off that comes to their media scrums because they're, you know, doing fan sites and are willing to stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning and applaud the wrestlers to be able to be a part of it. He's a legitimate sports journalist. And I saw that he said that the interview that he did with Tony apparently was the crummiest one he'd ever done, and, and I don't know why. I just heard him say that. So are we investigating this now today? Well, we've been working on that. I have not heard this either, but I had Jace Nakarado pull some timestamps and pull some clips that we should play here to explain Ariel Hawani's response to this. So this is from Tony Khan's appearance. I believe it would be on the MMA Hour. Oh, no, excuse me. It's on the Ariel Hawani Show. I want to make sure I get this right. Oh, he's got his own show. He's got his own show. He's a big deal. And here's his interview with Tony Khan. The first thing Jace recommends we play is right here at the start, the intro. Let's go to this. I have wanted to do this interview for quite some time, and I'm delighted that we're here with Tony Khan, a man who has more jobs than I can count. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how there's enough time in his day, but he gets it done. Of course, you know him from AEW. You know him from the Jacksonville Jaguars. You know him from Fulham. Those aren't his only jobs, by the way, but as far as AEW All Elite Wrestling is concerned who are celebrating a very important milestone, three-year anniversary on this Wednesday, a huge deal for them since the launch of Dynamite three years ago on TNT. He's the president, the chief executive, the general manager, the executive producer, the head booker, probably (laughs) some other stuff as well for AEW. He's the great Tony Khan. Tony, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. How are you, Ariel? I'm doing great. And can I just say, I'm very delighted that you're here speaking to me. Because if I could break the fourth wall, I thought you didn't like me for a long time, Tony. I felt like uh, I felt like we had heat, and I didn't know why, and it kind of hurt my feelings. No, not at all. Quite the opposite. I just uh, want people to clear the interviews they do with us, <laughs> uh, and you know, it's had nothing to do with you. But I really like, and since then, I think we've done a lot of great stuff in collaboration with you. Um, but it's my first time getting to visit with you in person, even though I think we've been in some arenas at big events at the same time. And uh, now we get to talk together and yes. I'm really excited about it. So I, as somebody who enjoys your show and enjoys your work, uh, this is fun for me. Well, they've certainly started off at each other's throats. I mean, I've never, God damn, they sound like the Arabs and the Israelis. What the, no, how could this interview possibly go south to be the worst one he's ever done when they've spent the past three minutes blowing each other? But again, the very first thing he says after reading back to him all of his jobs, is, I thought you hated me. <laughs> and then he has to convince him, no, no, I didn't hate you. Which, if he did or didn't, is the first thing he throws at him. It kind of sets a tone. 
Well, I I thought it was all in the in the maybe I'm just harder hearted than most people, but I thought that was all good natured, spirited banter amongst two grown adult men. And you would hope so, but I guess maybe people. And, he, be- and a reason why he probably thought that Tony didn't like him is because he's the one that they did the interview that didn't get cleared. That blah 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 that started a lot of trouble. Right, and again. We're playing that because of the way things went. If things went happily and they walked off hand in hand, (laughs) people wouldn't be talking about the intro of the interview. But here is Ariel Hawani asking Tony about MJF's contract and if Tony was comfortable with it. Let's go to this. Uh, Could I ask, you you mentioned MJF, my good friend. Um, I I think, and I've said this on many different platforms, uh, I think he's one of, if not the best thing going in pro wrestling today, regardless of promotion. Um, I'm I'm a huge admirer of his work. Uh, He reminds me of, you know, prime 1980s Roddy Piper, Uh, the way he conducts himself, just the mic work, everything about him. A few months ago when we did that interview and, and even afterwards, like when he's talking about his contract, and now I think you've done a nice job of kind of blending that into the program as well. And it's stuff that fans, especially of my generation, like we like that stuff and we're not sure what's a work, what's a shoot. He's calling you a mark, all that stuff. Initially, were you comfortable with him talking about – because in the business historically, we don't know when contracts are up. Were you comfortable with all that? I this is one of those things that I uh, don't want to talk about, but I do think uh, I agree with everything you let off with. I think he's one of the best wrestlers in the world. It's amazing how much he's accomplished already at such a young age. He's a great talent, and I have uh, so much respect for that part of what he does. And, you know, you compared him to Roddy Piper. I think um, I grew up idolizing Roddy Piper, Ric Flair, Chris Jericho, and, you know, he's got the you know, really uh, some of the qualities of some of my all-time favorite pro wrestlers. So definitely agree with all that stuff. And now to have him uh, on the show on a regular basis, it's tremendous. And like, I- right, I'm going to stop it there because apparently he why, goes on for another they, couple minutes. Why talking did they about do things. all that stuff if Tony didn't have a story set to tell afterwards? Yeah, you know, MJF, he's good and he knows he's good and he thinks he's even better than he is. And he tried to hold the whole company hostage. And I was in there in the negotiating room with him for hours and days. We stayed up to four o'clock in the morning one time trying to hammer something out. He's an important part of the program, but not if all he cares about is himself and how he gets ahead financially. And it's all about him. He's a head case. He's somebody we're going to have to monitor closely. There's no telling what he might do. But yeah, all that stuff, that was the most trying time of my life. But I wanted to make sure that we've got the best wrestlers, even if they're not the best human beings, for our fans on the program. Shit like that. Go ahead. Even if he said the same thing, but he didn't lead with, I don't want to answer that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's how a politician does it. I don't want to talk about it. A politician doesn't go, you know, I don't want to talk about that, so I'm going to say all this other stuff. They just do it. Any issue with the question? No, that's what everybody was wanting to hear, because that's the only interesting thing they've done in the last three or four months, is what was going on there. And then they kind of let that fucking twist in the wind for a while, but... No, he's, he's a journalist. He's asking questions. I assume that he figured when Tony agreed to do this thing that he was going to give him some kind of answers, even if they were horseshit. Well, here's Ariel attempting to follow up 
after Tony went on for a couple minutes after that, talking about different things, but never obviously answering any direct questions about MJF or his contract. Let's go to this. Could I just follow up if I may? Like the reason why I'm so drawn to MJF is because he talks about the side of the game. You know, you're a football guy. We love the business side of sports, right? Free agency, transfers, deals. This I think is brilliant. So I'm just curious, why don't you want to talk about it? Like why (laughs) this I think is part of his appeal. And I think it's great for the storyline, his spot in the company. He's going to be a free agent in a year and a half or so. And you're talking about it on the on the broadcast as well. Yeah, but I don't see how, you know, going into detail about it other than talking about his wrestling and what he brings to the show. And of course, uh, you know, everything he brings, his great promos, his great ideas. There's a lot there. But, uh, you know, I think you're you're starting when if you want to get into the contracts and that aspect of it with me. um, Same as my other jobs. If you wanted to talk about the contracts at Fulham. I would probably be kind of vague. I would say, like, I really like the player. I think it's good Tony, business we're doing. And, Tony, uh, lie, <laughs> work, <laughs> paint the verbal picture that MJF is a fucking heel, and he's a self-absorbed narcissist that's trying to take over your company and wanted to take all your money and you're trying to avoid that and at the same time keep him in, under control on your roster work and just uh, i think it's a great transfer that we're making and we're doing a smart move for the club but you know you you're getting into the numbers and stuff rarely will i do that uh, when he was on my show he just said that he came to terms with you on, on a deal but not an extension can i ask if that was accurate yeah, I, I again, I don't want to comment on what okay. we did, but I think uh, he's been well compensated, and I'm glad to have him on the shows, and uh, he's like a huge part of it now, so it's great. Okay, so what do you think of the MJF? Again, there are other ways to handle it. Even if you don't want to lie, there are other ways to handle it so that it doesn't come across as the longest non-answer ever but but it's not it's not lying it's working because this these things did happen so now put a spin on them to reflect the way you want people to view the participants on your program and mjf held everybody's feet to the fire until he got what he wanted because he's talked himself over and he's fought himself over and the people want to see him but god damn it's hard to deal with this guy And we had to go through serious negotiations to get him back on the program. But the same time I had him tied up, he don't want to talk about that. He couldn't just run around free because I had a claim to him contractually. We had to work out something that benefited both of us. And now, unfortunately, to do my job as president and chief cook and bottle washer of AEW, I had to give this guy a lot of money to get him back on the program, but that was also to make sure that my fans get the best program and he wasn't about to go anywhere else. Maybe he will in a year and a half, or maybe he won't. We'll just say something. Instead, we get Chuck Barris saying he's in the CIA, and then the CIA says we can't comment uh, one way or the other. (laughs) Well, here is Ariel asking Tony about the Labor Day all-out press scrum fallout. Oh, boy. Let's go to this. What was going through your mind at that press conference, Labor Day? I mean, I was just trying to watch you as uh, Punk, who I know quite well, was you know saying what he had to say. 
I was dying to know what was just happening in your mind in that moment as all that was unfolding. Could you share any of that with us? I cannot share any of that with you. <laughs> uh, but I Were you upset? You asked. I can't talk okay. about it, but I uh, appreciate, you know, and understand that you had to ask. Fair enough. C- could I ask what is the state of your relationship with CM Punk? You can ask, but I, I appreciate okay. you asked, but I cannot answer that question. Okay, fair enough. C- could I ask what's the state of his relationship with AEW? Like, is he is he going to come back? Is he suspended? I think there's a lot of uh, intrigue, a lot of questions regarding where he sits right now. I know he's nursing an injury, but is he going to come back or is that up in the air? You can ask, but I, okay. I cannot answer that and comment, my friend. Fair enough. And and what about the other particulars Fair involved enough. in the alleged incident afterwards? Can you comment on their status with the company? Are they are they back at least? I, maybe, it's the whole thing. I just the can't whole thing talk can't about, talk about, about it. it. I don't want to talk about it. I, I, but enough. it's but you know I I understand. I had to ask. I understand. I understand what you got to do. Could could I? <laughs> okay, let's stop it there. You know, I've never heard. <laughs> I've never heard anybody plead the fucking Fifth Amendment on a goddamn uh, sports interview. I refuse to answer on the grounds that might incriminate me. On the advice of my counsel. That's all I had to say. My legal team has instructed me not to talk about this. I know you have to ask. I wish I could answer, but they've said that for a variety of reasons, and it may end up being nothing. I can't really say anything right now, but I- I'm sorry. I wish I could. When I can, I'll talk to you. <laughs> right? Is that all you have to say? Then, well, uh, again... If he wasn't going to talk about anything that he was asked about, which is the things that you would expect that Tony Khan would be asked about, the things that everybody's interested in, what happened at the press scrum, what's fallout with the participants, what's going on with MJF, all those questions would be the first question any legitimate reporter would want to ask, and he's not answered any of them, so why do you agree to do the interview? Not exactly. I mean, sure. I know when they do the media scrum, it's, you know, four or five people from California and a couple of miscellaneous newsletter editors, and they just asked, Oh, what did you think about the flying wombat move that Twinkle Toes did 37 minutes into his epic 94 minute contest with pockets? They just put out a press release announcing Jericho's extension. It's not like the idea of asking about contracts or extensions or status on the roster, if they're suspended or not, is off the table. Yeah, no, you just have to make sure that you're asking about one of the people on the roster who wants their deal publicized and wants to talk about how long they're signed for and how much they're going to be doing in the company. Well, let's get another one here, Jim. Here's Ariel Hawani asking about Soraya. Uh, you recently signed a uh, page now known as Soraya, her real name, right? Uh, could I ask, is she going to wrestle for AEW or is she going to be more of a, an authority figure, or just, you know, a manager, if you will? Well, I don't want to say what Soraya's role is going to be yet, but I think that's one of those uh, stay tuned to okay. Dynamite you know, tonight <laughs> and Rampage every okay. week and you'll find out uh, what the plan is. But uh, Soraya is tremendous and it's great having her in AEW. She's a, such a recognizable star all over the world. And what a great signing for us in the UK, where AEW is by far the number one television wrestling company in the world. Uh, and I have I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that point that now AEW Dynamite on Friday nights has gotten moved up. Uh, and we've got a big run of shows now where Dynamite is actually starting on Friday at 9 p.m. Of course, it's Wednesdays. 
here in America. Yeah. Wednesday so Dynamite's night, tonight, on Friday tonight. in the UK? It's on Friday. At, uh, now it's been moved up because the ratings have been so strong. We just had our biggest viewership ever. It was We've topped it multiple times now. We had the Quake by the Lake set a new record. And uh, then we had this huge opportunity that they moved Grand Slam up two hours. He was asked about Soraya. I just want yeah, to remind you. Yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> Ariel was right there. One of the most recognizable faces around the world. Imagine if she still had the face she had five years ago, because a lot of people oh, recognize on. that one. Come on. <laughs> I'm just, you know, you got you got a lot of recognizable faces right there with that girl. Well, he didn't answer that, and it doesn't seem like he's going to come to an answer. Let's go to the next one here. Him being asked about Bray Wyatt. Let's go to this. Uh, can I ask you about one? Not sure if you can respond, but uh, you know, I wouldn't be me if I if I didn't try. Uh, I thought when Wyndham Rotunda was let go from WWE that he would have been a natural for you guys. Obviously, he hasn't signed with anyone. We don't know. There's rumors he might be coming back. Did you ever have a conversation with Wyndham or his management about coming to AEW? I don't want to talk about like people I haven't haven't talked to. <laughs> Uh, okay. I think I've said this in interviews before, so I wouldn't be giving anything away. I think I see he was at Chris Jericho's birthday party. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I've never uh, talked to him about uh, that kind of a thing uh, in person or anything. So I, I uh, think he's a tremendous talent and uh, you know, I, and I didn't want him working here. The <laughs> same as I said before, I wouldn't want to like comment on stuff with, you know, people, specific negotiations or, Totally understand. Um, I don't want to comment on stuff with people. What does he want to comment on? Uh, on the ratings of Dynamite in the UK on Friday nights at nine o'clock. Apparently, what are the WWE's ratings in the UK? Now we have to look into that. Uh, I have more audio, depending on how much you want to hear from this one. But what are your thoughts overall so far on the overall nature of it? Ariel Hawani's role. I can see if I was Ariel Hawani, how I would be getting a little frustrated at having this guy on my show who is spending all his time going, well, I can't talk about that, but I can plug my TV time. Um, I, you know, I, so I can see where he was kind of put out by the whole thing. All right, hold on. I'm fast forwarding. because I'm reading through Jace's notes here <laughs> and it seems like there's an amazing moment coming up. So let me go to, 108.35. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Ariel Hawani Show. Ariel Hawani has his own YouTube channel. Check it out right now. Subscribe. He's worth it for this. Let's go to Ariel Hawani and Tony Khan. Um, can I ask, I think one of the biggest stories of the, the wrestling, and, and I'll let you go in a moment, uh, the biggest Oh, no, I, this is great. You're loving this? Okay. <laughs> Are you uh, are you jammed for time? I'm not, but uh, I was told I can you sit here and not talk to no, you all day. Uh, I drank this entire cup of coffee and this entire water. I want. You mind? Can you hang on one second? Is oh, it okay, screw sure, you? Sure. Is this going to screw you in oh. post? No, no. It won't. All right, you guys got this. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right, he has muted himself now, Tony Khan. I was about to say, are we going to hear the piss? <laughs> They've sped up the tape. Ariel's just sitting there. Tony's taking a piss. <laughs> there was an empty chair. He's back. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hey, okay, yeah, cool. All right, I'll keep going. Um, so, as we sit here today, I think one of the biggest stories, if not the biggest story, as far as wrestling is concerned in 2022, was Cody Rhodes coming over to WWE. Did you try hard to keep him? I, I still can't almost believe that he, he, I mean, he was part of the foundation of the company. Did you try hard to keep him? 
I can't, I, again, we're in the realm of stuff I can't talk about, but I have a ton of respect for Cody and uh, really like Cody a lot and uh, wish him the best in everything he's doing. Uh, Was it surreal for you to see him over there after, you know, being sort of in the trenches with him for three years? I can't talk about it. I definitely. Why can't uh, you talk about that? I don't want to, because I don't think it'll serve me well. Okay. And uh, <laughs> I do think he's, a, he's great and have a ton of respect for him. And uh, it, it says a lot about him that, you know, in a year where uh, Vince McMahon. Uh, well, I mean, from a, from a wrestling standpoint. That, that, wrestling no, I'm business. not saying it's not. I think Cody moving is a huge story for the wrestling business. And I think it says a lot that in a year where uh, Vince McMahon comes back. And I was about to say before that Steve Austin came back and wrestled right. this year. So and it says a lot and that. Uh, Cody what jumping is say? right there is one of the biggest stories in pro wrestling. <laughs> say something. And uh, I have a lot of respect for Cody and like him a lot. All right, let's stop it there. I will just say for the record, I heard that there were mutual NDAs in place. Now, no one has said that. But does that does that prevent you from saying, you know what? Here's the thing. I've always respected Cody's ability as a, as a wrestler, and I enjoyed working with him for the time that we were together. And I understand that sometimes people's priorities change somehow. And things happen, and I wish him the best, but we got to carry on as best we can. Instead of, I don't want to talk about that. What? <sighs> Should have asked about Brandy. That would have been an interesting answer. Should have asked Brandy about Tony. You see, I want to hear all these people just talk. Yeah. Tell the truth. Just tell the truth. She... She's not a black belt. She's a black bitch. That was her quote, of course. And there are other things in this audio I'm not going to play for you. We could do it at a later time. But apparently, Ariel Hawani takes Tony to task a little bit for some of his comments about Nick Khan and WWE. And that's one of the things that people have honed in on because I may be getting some of this wrong. I don't have it in front of me, but I believe Nick Khan was Ariel Hawani's agent. And of course, ah. Ariel Hawani does have WWE people on his show. Apparently he has had his voice used on their programming. So a lot of people are pointing to that and saying conflict of interest. To be honest, I don't know, but he takes Tony to task for Nick Khan, but that's all we're going to play from the Ariel Hawani, Tony Khan, one hour and 17 minute interview. Again, on the Ariel Hawani YouTube channel. Here's my TV time. Be sure to watch the TV show. But I can't. Now we found out where Tony Khan would be most valuable. If the United States ever gets in another foreign war, Tony Khan should be in charge of all the intelligence. Because no matter how he is interrogated or cross examined, he's not going to spill the fucking beans. Not nah, Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter's the greatest of all time <laughs> in New York. He's the greatest at saying nothing and getting away with it. It's amazing. The most talented ever, Derek Jeter. I don't, but, well, you know, a lot of times people think it'd be like it is, but it do. But, you know, on the third time uh, is the charm on the court there on the field, and we're playing, and there you go. Well, Jim, before we move completely off the topic of Ariel Hawani and Tony Khan, and again, this has been a big issue this week, it was propelled a little further by Ariel Hawani speaking about it at a later date, and I'm not sure what that date was, on his program. Let's go to this clip. We'll stop it maybe a couple times, get your thoughts. But here's Ariel Hawani talking about his Tony Khan interview. Tony Khan interview. Did this interview with Tony Khan last Tuesday. It aired Wednesday night. It was for the YouTube channel. You can check it out. Uh, 
I, I, I look, whatever I'm going to say here is going to piss off the uh, the AEW supermarks. But I'll just say this: one of the most frustrating and to a degree not so fun interviews of my career because, as you may have seen, he didn't want to answer anything. Now, look, like you're going to come on and promote X, Y, and Z. Great. And I'll play that dance with you. And I did at the beginning. But you got to give us something to not even <laughs> tell me like how you were feeling. I'm not asking for specifics on, all right, fine, I asked, is, is Punk going to wrestle for you? Is he coming back? You don't want to get into it? Fine. But just tell me how you were feeling. Give me something. MJF contract. Hey, uh, you know, I don't do business in the public, but I'll tell you, love having him on board. Look forward to many years together. But give me something. Don't just say not going to talk about it. Not going to talk about it. Doesn't serve me. Doesn't serve me. That's not the way you do it. If you want to be the voice, if you want to be the face, there's a way to do that dance. Look at Eddie. Look at Dana back in the day. L look at some of the great promoters over the last 30 years. There's a way of giving us the answer, even though it's not the answer I want, but you're giving us some sort of answer, something to chew on, as opposed to just shutting it all down. Let me stop it there for a second. He's, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. And he's very perceptive. Yeah. And he's been doing this for a while. But, you know, when you Tony is he was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. He never wants to shut up at his media scrum or at his interviews that he controls. But when somebody's asking him questions that he's not quick enough to come up with a bullshit answer for it, he doesn't want to give the real one. Then he just shuts down. And in that case, that's not a person that ought to be doing the interviews speaking for your company not very enjoyable and, and if i'm being honest like right off the bat i was like oh i think you didn't like me back in the day because he turned down multiple interviews with me and then we get right into the mjf thing and like really deep into the weeds on the pr stuff and i was like golly this is how we're starting all right i just you know took a shot at bt the itv stuff should have went back at him and reminded him two minutes ago that he you know was fawning over warner brothers discovery about being the greatest place for AW. Meanwhile, BT is owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, and yet he's telling me that ITV is a better place than BT. <laughs> like, just these things that were... I'm not exactly sure everything he just said, but... <laughs> but it, it sounds like a conflict of interest, doesn't it? It certainly does. Or, um, you know, discrepancy. He says he never met Nikon, then he says he talked to him on the phone. I was like, what are we doing here? Well, like, well, what is this? And you're not going to give me one legit answer. I appreciated meeting him. I, I enjoy it. But like the enjoyment of getting to talk to the, the guy who founded this great property that has done a lot of great things in three years fizzled out rather quickly when I realized the only answers he's going to give me are these long drawn out answers uh, promoting all this stuff and going on these <laughs> tangents about Chris Jericho and this and that when, you know, we got a tight window and I kept mentioning the tight window because they told me there was a tight window and I can't get to any of the stuff. And then when I get to the stuff, you don't want to answer any of them. I won't get into this. I won't get it. MJF, uh, the punk stuff, the young buck stuff. Ask him about Bray Wyatt. Uh, ask him about. Uh, what else did I ask him about? Uh, MJF, Punk, Young Bucks. There was another one that I asked him about later on. Oh, Cody Rhodes. What do you mean to say? Like, what, how did you feel seeing him there? I'm not going to get into that. That's not going to serve me. Like, man, I'm not asking you for the financial breakdown. I'm just asking for your feelings. Yeah, you know, you know, it was tough. Uh, you know, we had been through the wars together. We went uh, in the trenches together. I'm happy for him. We're in a good spot. Maybe we'll do business in the future. You I just wish said him the what best, I just said. Yeah. There's a simple way to handle this that Tony doesn't grasp. That's everyone sees it but him.
practiced on our roster right now. Something. Give me something, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Uh, I, my feeling on that interview, in short, was this is me just shooting right here. I feel like Tony Khan doesn't trust me. I feel like he doesn't really like me. And I feel wow. like he came in there with his guard super up and didn't want to give me any sort of morsel because he thought that if he opened the door a little bit, I would walk in and ask X, Y, and Z. And I tried to tell his people like, yo, I have no allegiances to anyone. So I work for the British broadcaster of WWE. So what? When I worked for ESPN, I had Bellator guys and 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 uh, one guys on and whatever got Cage Warriors got. That's what do you think I'm going to do? Well, let's stop it here. So I guess he's going into the idea that he believes that Tony Khan had his guard up, as he put it, because of, we talked about before, any potential conflict of interest, the idea that Ariel Hawani works for a WWE partner or a network, I guess. Oh, but like there was going to be a big gotcha moment where suddenly it was going to be like the closing scene in Perry Mason and Tony was going to open his mouth and admit to some crime and get hauled off or whatever. It's a goddamn interview on a, on a podcast or on a YouTube channel. Um, I don't think Tony had to worry about being kidnapped, tied up, taken away, or held for ransom. Um, but he just he he you can't shut him up when he's allowed to ramble about all of the rambly things that he likes to talk about. But when you people ask him specific questions and want answers, then he he he's not that verbally nimble and he doesn't know what to say. And obviously, this whole I mean, it's not just about the media scrum and the investigation, although that whole thing is still far from settled, obviously. But he can't come up with a platonic answer about anything, about Cody, whatever. I, that Then why do the interview? He, I guess he's used to talking to all of the the journalists that are kind of like, journalist action figures that hang out around his shows where his real action figures have matches. There's way too much of that out there. I mean, you brought up a Sports Illustrated earlier. Sports Illustrated's not going to probe him like this. This was someone trying to do a serious interview and just get something. Oh, yeah, well, I was I was telling but at least, it, my God, at least it's not variety, for fuck's sake, for wrestling news. Where am I going to find out about the latest fucking Adam Sandler comedy over on fucking Fox Sports? Maybe if it's a golf movie, but let's finish with Ariel Hawani here. You think I'm going to come at him and hit him over the head with a steel chair? <laughs> so, I don't know. Didn't really enjoy it. Frustrating. Felt like he wasn't giving us anything. And then I felt like there were so many discrepancies. And watch this be cut up and watch all the marks. You know, my favorite thing about the crazy marks are they'll be like, oh, this is coming from, you know, uh, a guy who Nick Khan was his former agent. Every I know that voice he just did. I know whose voice it is that he just did. I know that voice. Every single time I talk about wrestling, I mention that, including in that interview, I mentioned it to him. Um, and they just, they love it. And you know what? I don't give a fuck. AW <laughs> in Toronto tonight. It's going to be great. My one regret was not asking about the 9,000 titles. Way too many titles in AW. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. If you are saying right now with a straight face that the AEW product is better than the WWE product, you're just a liar. You're just an absolute liar. There's there's wow. no if, ands, or buts. The WWE wow. product is infinitely better, infinitely more interesting. Infinitely. And there's a freaking brawl happening backstage each and every week, it seems. Meanwhile, it's all kumbaya on the Stanford side of things. Like, if you're going to be a super fan, be a super fan, but also tell it like it is. Six months ago wasn't the case. 
a year ago when Punk came back wasn't the case. When Brian signed, when Moxie came, all that stuff wasn't the case. But right this second, if you're going to sit here and say that it's a better product, you're an absolute liar. Adriano. Boom goes the Wow. With the announcement of UFC. Oh, wow. There it is. Ariel Hawani on uh, Tony Khan. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, he's he's infringing on our gimmick. I thought we were the ones to call old Tony on the carpet, put him on the edge of the rug and chasing him suitably. But Ariel has just aired everything out. I mean, <laughs> he just went, he just did a promo at the end. He just yeah. went from here are my problems. And by the way, here's what I think of you. Yeah. It, well, and here's the, if somebody, and I know people out there are going to, well, Ariel Hawani is a wrestling expert. I'm talking about legitimate, deep decades long wrestling knowledge. If, if even somebody as, briefly acquainted with the wrestling business as Ariel Hawani knows what's going on and can say that and can nail the the problems or many of the problems with Tony, you know, well, and, and they probably know it in the company. They know it backstage. They know it in the locker room. They just all getting paid a lot of money to be, you know, high priced toys. And they don't want to say anything except for the ones who are good enough at manipulation to get in Tony's ear and uh, swerve things around the way they want him to go. Yeah, he should have interviewed Jericho. Every answer, he would have turned into something about himself. But when you think about other executives, like a Triple H or even a Bruce Prichard, if they were doing an interview with someone like this, their non-answers wouldn't have been as you, not, not you wouldn't, rough, you wouldn't have been able, able to tell that they didn't answer the question until you went back and listened to it a second time. Right. Because they would have took you on the ride to begin with and then, and then segued you somewhere else. We've talked about the idea that Tony loves doing these interviews. And I only say that because he does so many interviews. And he did it here with one of the biggest MMA journalists out there, Ariel Hawani. He's done it with small wrestling podcasters. He does it with everyone. In that way, he's doesn't discriminate. It's actually kind of nice. But he talks to everyone. This is what happens. If you talk to everyone and you just want to be out there, but you don't have something to say, stop talking to people. Stop making sense, Brian. No, that was the JBL segment earlier. All right, we have come to a standstill here <laughs> on the show. <laughs> here at the OK Corral, we'll see what happens. Well, Brian, I'm going to take your show hostage for a second here because I got something I want to do to you. I want to play a little game with you, son. We mm. haven't played Guess the Program in a while. And I came across something. I was doing some research for an upcoming project. I want to, It'll be on Vice like everything else I do is these days. But I came across, I don't have the actual program, but I have the lineup. And I wanted to just see if you could determine where this was and when it was, as we normally do with Guess the Program, by me giving you the card and then you trying to figure out the date and the place, right? Okay. I'm going to deviate from our normal pattern in that normally we start with the preliminaries, we go up to the main event, I'm going to go in reverse. Main event, down to the first match, right? Right. The main event for the Southern Heavyweight title, Don McIntyre over Bobby Lane. 
We're in Georgia. I'm gonna. That's my first guess. No, wait. I've, I've, goddamn. I've read the wrong goddamn. I've read the wrong line. It's two weeks in a row. Let me come back. Oh fuck that. <laughs> Well, I look down. You don't even have to edit this. It's the same thing. It, it, <laughs> I look down because it's the same. It's the same title match uh, and the same defending champion two weeks in a row. And I look down the wrong line. Let me go go back. Main event, Southern Heavyweight title. Don McIntyre drew with Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. This is the right card. My first guess is still Atlanta, but we'll see how this transpires, as I was thinking originally. Yes, because of the Southern title and Don McIntyre. That's right. Who owned but a piece of the office in Atlanta? The semifinal match, Bobby Lane beat Sammy Silvers. And in the opening match, Don Colt huh. beat... Honey Boy Fargo. Wow! That, of course, is the future Don Fargo against his future Honey Boy, Jackie Fargo. <laughs> Jackie Fargo. Wow, okay. So I believe it, it's definitely before 57. Now I have to decide if it's 54, 55, or 56, because those are my three years that I'm guessing. And if I remembered Don Fargo's wonderful biography on Crowbar Press better, I would remember what year he started. But they were up uh, there by 57. I'm going with 55 or 56, Southern Heavyweight title, Don McIntyre. I'm going with 1956. Wait a minute. Hold on. Atlanta, Georgia. Hold on one second. Um, I need to find it. Hold on. Where is it? No, that's that's not the oh, right one. Come on, that that wasn't the right one at all. No, it wasn't. Well, that could work. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, fuck. You are wrong, sir. What? July six, nineteen fifty three. Wow. And the city, Tampa, Florida. Wow. Because, and by the way, Don Colt was a bodybuilder and regional bodybuilding champion in the Pittsburgh area, and I believe he had his first match in 1949, if I'm not mistaken. However, Don Colt and Jackie Fargo, both independently of each other, were booked to, in the first couple of years of their careers, were booked to wrestle in Florida, which at the time was not a big money territory at all. The crowds in Tampa, 2000, that was capacity for the building that they were running at that point. And people forget that in the 40s and 50s, Florida wasn't a vacation destination. It was a fucking swamp. And it was- Still a, is. Well, and besides for Miami Beach, which by even in those days, Miami Beach was- Where you went to something. die. It's well, you know, people had money there, whatever. But Tampa, Orlando, there were no amusement parks, there were no tourist attractions. These were small towns, and Florida was a, a you know, they had regular wrestling for years, like everywhere else, but it was not big business. And Roy Welch and Nick Goulas took Tampa over in the mid to late forties, and were using. The whole Tennessee crew down from Nashville. Nick was the front man promoter. Roy was booking. They used Pat Malone, the Green Shadow, 
Wild Bill Caney, the whole Tennessee crew, and they ran Florida for a while until an opposition promoter came in, and I think he had the benefit of being closer to home, and they were, you know, a long way from Tennessee, but it wasn't until Eddie Graham uh, moved there and became the top wrestling in-ring attraction and then bought into the promotion with Cowboy Luttrell in the early and mid-60s that Florida became a more lucrative wrestling territory. But anyway, so yeah, Don Fargo versus Jackie Fargo in the preliminary before Don was a Fargo and before Jackie was a star. And the Southern title at that point in time, uh, some of the Atlanta talent was being imported into Florida because they didn't really have a goddamn full crew down there at, at most points. And a very interesting in, um, I believe 1952 was the first year that a kid from Chattanooga, Tennessee went down to Florida and wrestled preliminary matches and must have liked the area of the country and seen an opportunity because he went back. Eddie Gossett debuted in 1952 working preliminaries. And later on, obviously, would team up with Dr. Jerry and become Eddie Graham and own the whole thing for 25 years. Anyway. Honey Boy. Honey Boy Fargo. That was his first, because he was, he had a, Jackie had a baby face when he was in his early 20s. He didn't have all those scars and all the tattoos, and done all the hard ways and everything at that point. It was Don McIntyre who sold his shares of the Georgia office to Buddy Fuller. When Buddy Fuller became partners with Ray Gunkel. Yes. And then Paul Jones, to be fair. Who always had some shares. Who always, till the very end. Because he, he was older than any other human being on the face of the earth. Well, Jim, let's get a question or two in before our dynamite review that everyone's looking forward to. This one was sent on Twitter using a hashtag corny drive through from Wrestling Mark. Would love to hear Jim's comments on this article about Ronda Rousey wanting to use thumbtacks in her match with Liv Morgan <sighs> and WWE's reaction. Have you heard anything about this? I, I actually, I saw a thing on Twitter and I clicked on it to read her comment. And basically she's, oh, we wanted to use thumbtacks, but the legal department wouldn't let us do it. Well, here's the actual quote. And this was transcribed. Uh, this is from a post wrestling article. Yeah, actually, I pitched the finish to be on thumbtacks. She put down thumbtacks. She was going to, I guess, Liv Morgan. Put down thumbtacks and powerbomb me onto the thumbtacks. And then as a repeat of our finish before, I would get the armbar on the thumbtacks. But they start counting the pin. But then I would have to push up onto my one shoulder, like into the thumbtacks to keep her armbar on. And Liv would be biting her hand, trying not to tap, and then pass out face down into the thumbtacks and have her hand there to protect her face. But they said, we can't do thumbtacks anymore. That legally, we can't purposely injure people and cut their skin and stuff. <laughs> and cut their skin and stuff. I don't know. So I was like, well, how about tiny little maple leaf pins? They're like, no. I'm like, how about a bunch of screws? They're on the side. It's the ground. They said, nope. So there it is. She wanted to use thumbtacks. And I guess the more interesting thing, it's not a surprise that someone who watches modern wrestling would be 
fooled into thinking that's a good idea. Well, but here's the thing. What would she have said when she was in the UFC or in the judo competitions in the Olympics or national AU, whatever the fucking case. Hey, well, how about some thumbtacks on the mat or thumbtacks in the cage? Wait, what are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Well, that's stupid. So why isn't it here? Because Ronda Rousey, whose pro wrestling knowledge is severely limited, would be offended if somebody suggested that they do that in one of the sports she took seriously. But now that she's just retired from all of that serious stuff and is just jacking around playing in an obvious, you know, goofy fucking environment where you can do stupid shit like that for no reason. Of course she would suggest that. What do you think of WWE's answer? Well, maybe that is the, the state of it and maybe, and that's good. Or maybe they just gave the old goddamn Deal answer that I would give when one of the sponsors at a spot show would want their kids to be able to get in the ring. Sorry, we can't do that because of insurance requirements. Another way to get the fuck away from me. I don't come down the goddamn Jiffy Lube and ask to go up on your rack. So that may be it also. But just another mark that's being pushed at a high level in the business and actually wants to do shit on thumbtacks because it'd be fun and cool. Here's her quote about using the bat. <laughs> you know what's so funny? It's a bat. You kind of have to be careful where you hit people with it. Whoop. And I felt bad because Liv was in a position when I was supposed to be whacking her with a bat. And I'm like, if I hit her in the back, I could really mess up her spine. If I hit her in the rib, I think it'll break a rib. I'm like, I'm just going to keep hitting her in the ass. I just keep whacking the shit out of her butt. Oh, God. Kind of felt bad later. But yeah, her butt must look bad today. So there's Rhonda. I had to use a bat. Oh, thank God we got that all cleared up. Here's an idea. Don't use the fucking bat, you idiot. If you can't use if you anything, bat, chair, ice pick, whatever you can't work with, don't use it. But what if she doesn't have a choice? What if she's handed it by Triple H and he says, take this bat and do what's right? Well, then she or I'll say, take your house and your family and you have nothing. I was going to say, take this bat and do what's right. Well, then she wouldn't have to work with the bat. She would do what's right and obliterate Liv Morgan. But if she, if, if he said, take the bat and wear her out with it, and she said, I don't know how to work with a bat and it will look like shit, then I don't think they would have goddamn made her, at point of a gun, use the bat. But nobody is willing to come out and say anymore, I can't do that. It will look like shit. Or even if I could hit the girl with the bat and it would look good, I'm not going to do it 14 fucking times because that's ridiculous. So what she told everybody was, I'm Ronda Rousey. I've got a baseball bat and I can't hurt this hundred pound little blonde plastic surgically enhanced barbie doll well we don't know if she's surgically enhanced that's not fair all right this blonde barbie doll replicated well, possibly surgically enhanced possibly not possibly not she's still 100 pounds and she's still being beaten with a baseball bat for fuck's sake well only in the butt what 
Only in the butt. She could take a pounding, what? apparently. What? In the butt? <laughs> what? What? In the butt? All right, before you keep doing the butt, let's move on here with the show. Jim, another question. This was sent in the corny drive through at gmail.com from Johnny Sousa. I watched one of your shoot interview videos where you played a word association game. Wrestlers' names were read, and you would describe them using only a few words. When Larry Zabisco's name came up, you said, very funny man, also, the stall. <laughs> Do you have any funny Zabisco stories, and can you elaborate on what you meant by the stall? Well, that was, that was Zabisco's trademark when he was an active wrestler in the 80s as a heel, is that he got more mileage out of stalling to start the match, not locking up, backing up, jawing with the crowd arguing with the referee, doing everything he could to delay the proceedings. Uh, and that's, you know, how he would get heat with the people. And he was the master of it. And he was all over the place doing that. So master of the stall. And Larry just being, uh, t talking to him, he's fucking hilarious. He just, you know, he's got the, uh, he used to come in to the TNA tapings when we were in Orlando, even when he wasn't working for TNA. And he had a run or two there every once in a while. They did something with him. But he would just come in because he lived there. And he'd come in, eat the free catering, talk to the fucking boys, then then go off to play golf. That's all he does is dress in Hawaiian shirts, play fucking golf, and have conversations with people. And he's, he's hilarious. You um, saw what he was like, you know, from the Bruno feud on. How do you think him as a heel, as a stalling heel, would have worked in a place like Memphis? How would it have worked in the South? Uh, probably not. Well, Larry, Larry wouldn't have liked a variety of things about Tennessee. But if he liked it, if it was just, um, okay, I'm moving on to the next territory, I'm taking what I do to Memphis, would it have worked? But no, it wouldn't have. Because, I mean, the stall works regardless because everybody has done that since the dawn of time. but. The part where Larry didn't really like it at the end, if, if he'd have been in Memphis, is the part where eventually, because he would have been a heel, he would have been fucking taking every goddamn bump known to man once that they got their hands on him. Uh, it, it Because you you couldn't just do the walk and talk match in Memphis. You ha you could do that to start, but then you had to finish with every goddamn, you know, wild, chaotic thing you could think of. And I don't think Larry would have liked the weather or the the payoffs, or the schedule, or seven days a week in the car, or the style, or anything else. But now he probably would have not. He was tailor-made Vern's territory, because all of Vern's guys had slowed down, and Larry was younger, and, and Larry could talk, and the AWA was about interviews. And for a lesser extent, same thing during the time he was in WCW in the early 90s. He was great. He had one of my favorite comebacks ever in 94 when all of a sudden it was him and Regal. They had some great matches. And then all of a sudden he got over during Nitro as a commentator during like the first hour. He got himself over as a big baby face. Yeah, because he could talk. But there you have it. All right, Jim, one more question here. This was sent to Corny Drive Through at gmail.com from Nick Fox. Not to be confused with Foxy, as talked about earlier. 
Who do you think are the worst world champions of all time? We all know the recent ones, but just for us wrestling fans, in the <laughs> UK, who is this trailed off into another language almost here, but I guess in the territory days as well as now, the worst champions of all time. Well, now, worst world champions. He didn't say worst, worst territory champion. champions. What well, said um, in the UK, who was a bad idea didn't work out back in the territory days. So that's how it ended, but it oh, trailed well, off in the middle. Well, let's assume that we're talking worst world champion. Uh, Dick Hutton comes to mind in terms of a guy that, well, now I've I've confused everybody. Well, you Without know what, though? into great detail. What? Well, I was just going to say, you should say what qualifies someone to be a, a good champion, realistically, which is they draw. People are interested in seeing them, and they keep buying tickets to see them. And drawing means something different now than it did 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago. But it all comes back to that. That's what makes a good champion, right? Well, yeah. And uh, Dick Hutton was an NCAA wrestling champion. And... Fez, when it was time for Fez to drop the belt and he wanted to go do an international tour, he wasn't going to drop it to Rogers because he didn't like Rogers. He would never put him over. And he wanted to put the NWA world title on a legitimate wrestler that would carry on in his footsteps. But the problem was, and I don't think Fez even realized, even though he was a legitimate wrestler, he'd been a pro at that time for over 20 years, and he knew how to use his legitimacy in the confines of professional wrestling, and he kind of stood above it and et cetera, but he knew how to promote matches. He knew how to do newspaper interviews, He, you know, that type of thing. Dick Hutton apparently was just a big, you know, he was a great wrestler as an amateur, but when he turned pro, he was colorless and they tried to make him a cowboy at one point he looked like kurt angle wearing a cowboy hat the promoters didn't like him he didn't draw he was he had no charisma and the nwa fell apart in large part while he was champion because so many of the other the nwa member territories said we're just going to make our own champion so we can sell some fucking tickets so that backfired and, you know, hurt the, the organization. So it wasn't that he was a rotten wrestler, but he was a rotten pro wrestler. And, but I'm trying to think of a really bad champion back in those days. You didn't have the situation where they'd put the title on a great Kali or whatever. It, you had to be a, a good champion back in those days to get the spot because the promoters gave it to you based on whether you would draw and you had to have some track record of already drawing to begin with. What makes a great champion is a guy that can not only sell tickets and is over and can talk and work, but can make the other guy look like he's even better because he, sh oh, he should have won next time he's going to win. That was the whole way that the thing was built was people wanted to see a world title change and they wanted to see their hero win it and they would chase those two things for months or years the fans would before a few of them were gratified but you title changes were rare you didn't see them all the time and only the guys that were voted on by multiple promoters 
in most cases, got that fucking spot. So there was not a lot of hit and miss. Hey, let's put this on him. Like the regional titles. Boy, there we could go down the records for all of the titles and come up with how the fuck did they think putting a belt on this guy was a good idea? Well, as far as world champions go, obviously the answer is Tommy Rich. But if we're talking about the modern era, well, no, say- Tommy Tommy Rich had it five days and and still actually drew a lot more money in the wrestling business than Dick Hutton ever did. He had it when he had bangs. Also, if you ever see a photo of like any of the NWA champions gathered together all in their suits, minus Dory Funk Jr., who has his own yeah. weird advertising-based fashion sense, <laughs> you can't really picture Tommy Rich in the mix with Gene Kaniski and Luthes. <laughs> you just can't. Uh, but in terms of the era from the 90s on, from when you were involved with the creative end of the business on, 1989, 1990 oh, on. Oh, good Lord. I can't even. I mean, I can do the NWA champions from probably Longson through fucking Flair, but I don't even remember who had the belt in the 90s. Jim pulling a Tony Khan here. I'm no just, answer. I'm, no, I'm, it's, it's not. A, the answer is I don't fucking remember. How about that? I plead the fifth. Third, fourth, and fifth. Third, fourth, and fifth. All right. Well. What would you get if you pled the Third Amendment? What is the Third Amendment? I don't know. Hold on. We will find out right now. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I plead the Third Amendment. I will refuse to answer any more questions because I'm pleading the Third. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quarantined in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. There you go. Whatever the fuck it is that that means that you just said, I, apparently I can kick a fucking soldier out of my house if I want to. Well, they're not allowed to forcibly house themselves at Castle Cornet. I think house themselves forcibly? Forcibly. That's right. What is that, a All horse? Right. What was that? That's the cavalry. Are you riding off there? I'm riding off into the sunset. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to ride off. we got to watch AEW. No, we don't have to, but we will. And of course, we're going to ride off into the sunset here today as we are recording. We will return tomorrow with more recording, and the show may be out tomorrow night, or who knows what's going on, but we'll be back in a moment as you are listening to this. We are back after this seamless day-long intermission. It it hadn't been a day. It has not been a full day. It's still in the morning here, and it's cold. And the Featherbottoms just brought over a cargo van to load up about 300 boxes out there in the garage in 35-degree weather, so I'm still shivering. So my shivery voice may not match what we've done on the program so far. This is your show. I wish we had your shivery voice for the Bray Wyatt reviews. It would fit in there, Ooh. the spookiness of it. But I could I could do Sammy Terry. May you have many pleasant nightmares. <laughs> well, we will talk about the pleasant nightmare that was AEW Dynamite shortly, which is what we oh, promised boy. everyone. But before we get to that, some news that broke overnight. Although I had heard a few things last week, it is now, I guess, officially being put out there. Dave Meltzer reporting Ace Steel officially released from AEW. I hate to hear that. Because he was my hero in the whole thing. He's the one that really did all the damage. He came to the, like a knight in shining armor, came to the rescue of his poor crippled wife who was trapped in a room with a bunch of raging EVPs. 
And if, if, if it wasn't Larry that bit old Yeller over there, if it was indeed a steel and that was heroic and the chair and the whole nine, it sounds like he was fucking Dick the Bruiser in this. I think he should be on top. He should be in the main event over there. No, I'm sorry to hear that because he's a experienced veteran wrestler, trainer, etc., with a lot of fucking background in the wrestling business, the kind of guy that they need. If they didn't have the Cucamonga kids and the weirdo from fucking Sapporo, you know, uh, causing all this trouble, they'd still have a valuable employee. So that's what I think about that. They didn't really have much of a choice, though, with Ace Steel. Out of everyone involved in it, he seemed, as I said early on, there were two people who I thought would be gone coming out of this and the various things that led up to this, and I thought Ace Steel would definitely be one of them. He was there the shortest period of time. Um, You know, there's certainly been a lot of issues around the idea that it was put out there that CM Punk led to Colt Cabana being removed or almost fired. Well, I would assume that CM Punk is one of the people that led to Ace Steel being hired in the first place just because of the situation, but he's gone now. How do you think this affects whatever else is going on with this mysterious investigation? Well, you know, that's the problem is Punk can't come back now if everything was okay, we've, you know, concluded the investigation and the dipshits were at fault. Punk, come on back. He's just had surgery. So we may not know what's going on there. We may not know what's going on with the EVPs for a while. Didn't uh, somebody say that Twinkle Toes couldn't appear in Mexico because he was still suspended at at AAA? Apparently Conan is the one who said that he asked Kenny Omega to record a video, just a short video, because I believe he is still... He's not the mega champion, right? He's the number one contender for their mega champion. He's the mega, mega King Kong Godzilla champion. Isn't Chris Jericho the mega champion? But anyway, uh, Kenny Omega couldn't send the video, and the reason that was put out there was because of legal issues. Well, I think they ought to send him to Mexico for about three or four years. Just say, work every night. That's, uh, That's how you can clear this whole thing up. And that way, we wouldn't have to look at him. But everybody that wanted to search it out could easily find it. No, I I don't know. Again, yeah, because Ace Steel's the one that, from what we can tell, did most of the damage. <laughs> Whatever was left over the punk didn't do, Steel did. So, you know, he's not the main event star. He's not the world champion. He's not the guy that drew million-dollar gates. So I guess they got to do something to make some people happy. But we will see when it gets down to, as well as everybody down south used to say, when it gets down to nut-cutting time, we'll see what happens with the uh, the Mount Rushmore of the situation. Twinkle Toes, the Cucamonga Kids, and Punk. Well, we shall see what happens. But before we move on, Jim, one more follow-up here. A story we recently talked about. This is breaking right now in the New York Post exclusive. Director John Waters says he once saw Angela Lansbury at a sex club. Oh! Murder, she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Crybaby director John Waters says he once saw the late, great Angela Lansbury at a sex club called Hellfire in New York City in the 80s. In Waters' 2019 book, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder, 
That's a great title. The, <laughs> king, the King of Camp claims he once saw the Murder, She Wrote star checking out the scene at a spot described as a dungeon-like sex club that catered to gay and straight perverts alike. Waters, <laughs> Waters is a huge fan <laughs> of Lansbury. Equal, equal opportunity, you know, employment there. Waters is a huge fan of Lansbury, telling Page Six exclusively, Angela was pure class, even 40 years ago, when these kind of clubs were all the rage. It may have been the only night she was ever there, but just her presence made Hellfire a little more welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I want to th- believe, though, that she was, she was a regular member, and, and she, was, she was there every, every Saturday night. But she was probably, she was there doing background, I'm sure, for a, a movie, a major motion picture, a sitcom, something of that nature. The S&M Club was hidden away on 9th Street in the Meatpacking District. The Meatpacking District! How much meat do they pack down there? In the, you're a New York expert. Have you ever packed meat down there at the district? Uh, the meatpacking district is very different today. It's a little more upscale and they've tried to develop it just like Hell's Kitchen and everything else in Manhattan. Wait a minute. How is there upscale meatpacking? That's a pretty dirty business. Well, it's a district. It's messy. It's not about the meatpacking. It's about the district. It's a district and they just kept the name Well, if that's a district where all they do is pack meat, they're out of, there's fucking suet and, you know, bones laying around in the streets and there's blood running everywhere. The streets are running red with blood in the meatpacking district. You would have to think. It sounds like an unsavory place. So if there's if blood everywhere, who do you call? Murder, she wrote. Call Angela Lansbury. Well, there, that's why she was there. She was looking for a gay or straight pervert at Hellfire. That got murdered. That got murdered in the meatpacking district. Because that's where all the blood is coming from that's running down there. But no, did they, at one time, apparently, they packed a lot of meat. But now you're saying it's more upscale. They, they're not packing the meat like they used to down there. No, I'm not a sex club kind of person. And, of course, New York was... Well, that's not all there is there is. You know, no, there's you always a good buffet. Meat in a variety of ways. No, there's, there's buffets, there's sex always clubs, a good buffet. and meatpacking. People still talk about Plato's Retreat, but when you go to one of these clubs, I have to imagine in your head, if you think about some celebrity showing up, you're thinking about some beautiful model, some fantasy woman. <laughs> imagine, whatever you're doing there, you look up, oh my God, is that Angela Lansbury? <laughs> <laughs> But like I say, in Gaslight, she was hot. 19 years old. In Gaslight, she was hot. I'm talking about in Hellfire. Well, in Damnation. (laughs) Let's see, Gaslight was 1944. Is it 40 years later? She's 60. Yeah, maybe. All right, maybe I'll, I'll just pack some meat. Well, perhaps you are a family member of Angela Lansbury listening to this show, and perhaps... You originally planned on doing this transition after Ace Steel, but then we decided to talk about this breaking news about Angela Lansbury's sex life, or whatever there is going on here. Whatever it is, perhaps you hate the show this week and you just want to sue. (laughs) Well, in that case, I know exactly who to call. Call Steven Show or two. 
Let's go to the rest. Well, I'll tell you, if you're intending to sue us, ladies and gentlemen, you better think twice and then think again, because our attorney is the legendary Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. And let me tell you something, you would rather walk through hell with gasoline britches on, or you'd rather walk through hellfire with a gasoline cock ring on, than to mess with Stephen P. New. The headlines are out all over the state of West Virginia, but you remember this, Brian. State lawmakers want the truth about jail allegations. Stephen P. New has been stirring things up over there in the mountain state of West Virginia because he has brought to light incredible uh, draconian conditions at the West Virginia state jails, all the regional jails, they're overcrowded, they're falling apart, the inmates have been deprived of clean water, food, clothing, medical care. The Senate over there in West Virginia is up in arms about everything. Broken toilets infested with maggots, holy mackerel. Jail's not a safe place to go anymore. I'm going to have to change my vacation plans. But... Stephen P. New has brought this issue to the attention of the state government over there on behalf of the inmates. If he will represent the inmates, the poor and the downtrodden, then he'll represent you, the cult of Cornette, who are equally sometimes poor and downtrodden and taken advantage of and need somebody to carry the flag of justice for you. Well, let me tell you something. That is Stephen P. New. At New Law Office, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice is quaking in his boots right now over the allegations, actually, that Stephen P. New will prove are facts on behalf of these poor prisoners. And he's also proving things on behalf of innocent citizens like you who have never picked a pocket. And Brian, you know this also the way they've got these jails so overcrowded, the reason why. According to Brandon Steele, one of the state lawmakers over there, is because of the opioid crisis. They were built, these jails, for an inmate population that didn't have a huge drug problem. And Stephen P. New has been on the front lines of fighting the opioid crisis in West Virginia and all around the country as well. So he's got them coming and going. It's all interconnected. There's a big conspiracy here. Well, Stephen's getting to the root of it, and he can get to your root, too. Whatever root that you've got that is ailing Stephen will root it out and fix it. And again, he can represent the little guy just like he represents. He represents everybody. The little guys, the big guys, the short guys, the fat guys. He can represent your guy. Stephen P. New, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8000. That's right. He can certainly help you, and he has certainly helped many other people get with Stephen P. New today. But, Jim, let's wrap things up. Let's get back to the meatpacking district, though. This one in Cincinnati, (sighs) AEW Dynamite, live in Cincinnati. Boy, and I'll tell you what, because, you know, we've got a busy couple of days here, and we were trying to get this recorded, and I've got the... um, The TV crews are coming back to the castle this week. We got all kinds of stuff going on. I said, I'm going to watch because I had work to do and getting everything ready for the feather bottoms. I'm going to watch AEW as it happens for once instead of waiting till the next day and 
zipping through it. I'm going to watch it right along with everybody else. Boy, did I pick the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. And we're going to talk about what everybody's talking about, obviously, when we get to the end of the program, because that was that's the meat of the matter. But we're meat packing today all over the place. But um, but let's start out briefly going through the rest of the program because there was one amazing performance that you could put in a time capsule, and I, you know, this this might have been. I hate to spoil anything for anybody, but this might have been the week that they were lucky that the news from the main event overshadowed everything else about this program. Because, boy, howdy. I thought they were ribbing us by 45 minutes in. So they started off with the World Trios title on the line. They've got over a million people watching this program coming off of the Big Bang. No. And they decide. No, no, no. Huh? No? This is Tuesday. They're coming off the Major League Baseball playoff game between oh, the shit, Yankees and right. the Guardians. So how many people watched that son of a bitch? Oh, I don't have the ratings in front of me, but that was a high-profile game. It was a do-or-die game for both teams. Probably more than the Big Bang reruns that they normally have. Certainly, although there was a gap in between the end of the game and AEW where there was a post-game show. So if you want to listen to Jimmy Rollins for a while, you may have watched that or you may have turned the channel. I don't know. He was in Black Flag, right? Jimmy Rollins. Jimmy Rollins. You're thinking of Henry Rollins. Jimmy Rollins oh, is on the no. Philadelphia Phillies. Henry oh. Rollins was in Black Flag. Okay, I'm sorry. Henry Rollins, one of many former Black Flag members wondering where all the money is. Uh, well, anyways. SST of, Records. Well, go ahead, please. Wondering where all the talent is. They decided however many people was watching this program at the start, it would be a good idea if the first thing they saw was Pockets Trent and Muffin Top Taylor. And here they come to the ring and followed by their opponents, Pac, Penthouse, and Felix. So, good Lord. Let's see if anybody had the patience to sit through that and see if there was going to be anything good on the program when the ratings do come out. But we will try to update. I don't think we're going to have them this early, but we'll try to update everybody this week on the experience. But anyway, that was the first 15 minutes of the show. Taylor is fatter than ever. He's wearing a top now, so at least the muffin top doesn't protrude as much as it did. And even on fast forward, I could see that at one point they actually built a cheerleading pyramid in the middle of the ring with human bodies. So first 15 minutes of the show that anybody in that company thought that this was a good way to open up the program. If you've got a major league baseball lead in, you're fucking lunatic. It's tragic. So then they did a package on, did I miss anything by the way, or do you even care to refer to this assault on our senses? I clearly don't have the, uh, venom that you have towards all the participants here, but even with that said, I'm not a fan of this. How many times do we have to see Pac and Orange Cassidy in a match? It's over and over and over again. No one wants to see the best friends except the most diehard of AEW fans. Like you said, the most important thing, I'm not going to just rip on it because I didn't pay that close of attention to it because I don't want to see these people anymore. I'm burned out on them. 
And I didn't like best friends to begin with. But there had to be a better way to begin this show on a special night coming out of a Major League Baseball playoff game. It had looks to be a better like, way. It looks like they just, even if Pack Pac physically standing there, if you didn't know who he was, never seen him wrestle, he looks like a million dollars. Penthouse and Felix, at least, well, they've got intriguing outfits on. But the other three look like they just wandered to any local fucking indie show and just grabbed three guys off the card and said, here, go out on national TV. It's embarrassing. They came out of an NBA playoff game once with Jericho, and the NBA fans went crazy because that was when Jericho was completely out of shape. Yeah, remember NBA Twitter was what they call it. NBA Twitter's all over Chris Jericho was the news. Chris Jericho is in the best shape he's been in in many, many, many years right now. They should have began the show with him. Uh, they, they could have begun the show with anything that looked like an athlete, but, uh, I wonder if there's baseball Twitter is baseball Twitter going to say, what the fuck kind of wrestling is that? I think baseball Twitter is mostly diehard fans attacking baseball writers (laughs) from what I've seen. (laughs) Well, anyway, moving on, they did a package on Moxley and pages main event later on that night. Moxley has personality. Listening to Adam page talk is like eating dry coleslaw. It's like you're just, it's there. All right. The next match, and I'm not kidding anybody, was for the interim women's title with Tony Storm defending against Hikaru Shida. She's still there. And I wrote, are they ribbonous? Um, Storm looks great. Her work is okay. We've been watching her since NXT. She's always looked like a star. You can't really tell a lot about any girl that's fairly good here because the other girls drag them down. Uh, She's one of three or four women with championship belts in the company. She has been here way too long. And it went forever, and they tried to be real complicated. And then finally, Tony Storm won. And as soon as Tony Storm wins, here comes Jamie Hayter and Reba from the back into the ring to attack her. And Britt Baker's music plays, and she's making a music entrance while they're beating up Tony Storm. Her stooges are beating up Tony Storm in the ring. And then as soon as she gets there, they but she doesn't even get in the ring yet, and they play Soraya's music. And here comes Soraya. And while Soraya and Britt Baker, again, is this the only person they trust to touch Soraya? They're treating her like a Fabergé egg. Well, look at it the other way. Is this the only person who wants to work with Soraya and risk injuring her or her being injured doing something simple? Well, there's no risk here that I've seen so far because they grabbed each other and had a sloppy hockey fight where they were again throwing the punches within the vicinity of each other. While meanwhile, Reba's in the ring beating on Tony Storm with a crutch. And the other girls are, and the, the, they, Baker and Soraya fight off into the crowd. But Tony Storm is still getting the shit kicked out of her. And then here comes the music for Rio. She's back. To save and the division. Here comes this buck-toothed 87-pound girl in a frilly pink frock with that constant quizzical 
look on her face like she's confused at seeing colors. And she runs in the ring, drop kicks Reba, comes off the top rope with a crossbody to the floor on Hater and looked like it killed her, and makes this giant comeback from this 10 year old girl, at least 10 year old size girl, that upstaged the biggest female name that they have ever signed. Soraya comes out, gets in a shitty fight with Britt Baker and disappears, and Riho comes in and clears the fucking ring. Can you explain that to me? And then after they did all this, the baby faces just walked off and left the heels laying there looking at them. Well, listen, the women's division has been a disaster and a booking mess for a very long time, especially bad the last several weeks as the ratings have died almost every single women's segment on the show. If you want a sign that Omega may be coming back, Sheeta and Rio reappear on the show this week. <laughs> you know, Rio, I don't have the problem with Rio that you do. She's grown on me. I look at the what? days I look at the days of Rio and Emmy Sakura like the glory days now of this women's division. And I like the fact that she no longer dresses like a schoolgirl going to school. Now she's a schoolgirl going to a birthday party at Motion Potion or something. But Soraya debuted, did a promo, a promo that never went anywhere, and then she has just come out with music, gotten a pop, and now she's done a couple of things with Britt Baker. It's been like a month now. Is this all it is? Just her running out for a pop and fighting with the one person on the roster but, who will work with her? But the point is, nobody... Even remember she was there by the time they, the way they constructed this, this little mousy, bland shopkeeper comes in and just lays waste to everybody and does all this shit that she shouldn't be allowed to do, even if it's possible for her to do it. And where'd Soraya go? Oh, she fought off. And meanwhile, Jamie Hayter lost in the shuffle and all this. You said it looked like she got killed on the floor. I'm going to guess maybe she didn't. Because she's actually really good at taking those bumps where someone does a cross body, she jumps. Yeah, but, and- but, but here's not, they were on the floor. Here's the thing I'm no Riho is minuscule, microscopic. You know, she has trouble picking up an amoeba. But literally, she does weigh 85, 90 pounds. Take an 85 or 90 pound sack of fucking grass seed, horse feed, potatoes. And go up about eight feet and pitch it to somebody and see how it feels them when they fucking catch it. Well, my point was going to be Jamie Hayter, as we pointed out, and then the fans really got into her. She's been getting big pops. The fans have been chanting for her. So she's just lost in the shuffle in this whole thing. Yeah. Doesn't stand out. It seems like now they realize what a disaster the women's division is. So it becomes whatever match we have, let's just get every woman in this segment. Just everyone run out there, except whoever's working with Jade. Everyone else just run out there and do something and then vanish for the rest of the show. Good Lord. And hey, there's a clip floating around on Twitter of what was her name? Ember Moon, old satchel ass, whatever her what? name is now. Now, before I say anything, um, I saw this. Are we positive? Um, I mean, you can't work things that clearly you're laying in there, but I don't Before we lambast her, are we sure they weren't working together on this thing? Well, no, she, I, if she was working together, big shit, it was reckless. 
It was reckless. She was picking people up or picking this girl up and throwing her. She was fucking all over, just throwing fucking spuds from everywhere that you couldn't. That There was no working involved in this. It was reckless and dangerous. What do you think of the spot where she picked her up for a suplex and dumped her onto the floor? That's what I'm saying. It, and, and this girl is a job girl, wanting to get a, a job, wanting to get booked. So I'm sure she'd say yes. You know, do this to me, or yes, I'll take this, or whatever. That doesn't mean you just need to grab people and willy-nilly fucking chuck them places. And or remember, this is the one that just tried to do that fucking fall-away slam and fell backwards and landed on Britt Baker's, wasn't it Britt Baker's face? Broke her nose? Yeah. And we've talked about some of the other shit she was doing. What the fuck? She's landing that big wide ass on everybody full force. I don't know what her fucking deal is, but I made the comment on Twitter that if she'd have done that to the wrong girl in, in, in one era, she'd have been snatched bald headed and have her tongue stuck her up her own ass. Judy Martin or Sherry Martell, one of the, try to do that shit with them. What the fuck? And if what in the world on a YouTube show or a dark match or whatever this thing was shot for would you even want to do something like that to some fucking girl even if she was willing is the mulky principle but the mulkies knew how to take the bumps and they only took them from people they trusted like bobby eaton to give them to them and randy mulky has still had multiple surgeries and replaced body parts and here's some girl's been in business 15 minutes and is getting chucked around and landed on and fucking swung at wildly by this fucking goof. Fuck. Fuck all of them then, if she was in on it. They're both stupid. I'd have fired both of them. One for doing it and one for letting it happen. What's the agent's job there? I don't know what the agent's job there is. Apparently, a lot of eye-closing. Anyway. Let's go back to the program. They've actually got new talent that somebody might want to see if they do it right. Wink, wink. We'll see about that. Mike Bennett, Matt Taven, and Maria. They apparently debuted on some show that either YouTube or Rampage or whatever, and now they are (laughs) being placed into a program apparently with Wardlow and Samoa Joe. Because they did a pre-taped interview with Wardlow and Joe, and Wardlow was blah because he can't talk, especially in canned promos when they're just standing there giving him bullshit to say. Joe was great. I think his closing line was, of the six million ways there are for you to die, you've picked the wrong one. He's fucking fantastic. Wardlow needs to be heard from very little and seen smashing people over very much or smashing over people. But Matt Taven and Mike Bennett can I they they are athletes, they're grown adults, they look good, they've had experience together as a team. I've been high on Mike Bennett since he came to Ring of Honor in what 2010. Great all-around guy, worker, athlete. Matt Taven, I thought, um, 
<clears throat> what was that period of time? He right as I was leaving Ring of Honor, we were trying to get him in. And then he had an injury, and and I think eventually he made his way there. I can't remember. I don't have all the notes on his career. But point being, they can do something with, with these guys. And Maria looks great and, again, has a touch. She's probably got more experience in the ring than any of these other girls at this point. But a package like that you can do something with. They are short on people with major league looks on this program. If they had more, they wouldn't have to send fucking pockets and the chuckle fucks out to open their national TV show. So they look great. And and I got to hand it to Maria. I mean, when we got her in OVW in 2005, she didn't know shit from apple butter and didn't know anything about wrestling. I'm like, oh, because I'm rolling my eyes at all these, you know, lingerie models that Laurenitis had been sending me. But she stuck with it, and learned. she's a smart girl. She's intelligent. So she stuck with it and learned her shit and has done well and ended up being able to talk, which I didn't think would happen at the start. So anyway, so we got to see them about 30 seconds on tape after we'd watched Tony Storm and all the rest of that shit for about 20 minutes. We were 40 minutes into the program at this point, ladies and gentlemen. And then Renee Moxley Good did a a backstage promo. Now she's Bar Brady in the in the heyday. She's in every segment. They do it if either Bar Brady was doing every interview or Tony did every interview. Now Renee is going to do every interview. But backstage with FTR, you could hear the people in the arena popping. They're like, do we get to see him tonight? No, you don't. But in the back, uh, Swerve and Keith Lee was actually there, and they popped in, and FTR challenged them next week for a number one contender match. So I'll believe they have a good idea here for FTR when I see it. But again, we're 40 minutes into the show. We had the fucking six-man fiasco. We had the Rotten Girls match. There's the best tag team in wrestling in a pre-taped backstage promo. And for that matter, there's Mike Bennett and Matt Taven, an experienced tag team, athletic, competent, and they're being used to put Wardlow and Samoa Joe over who are two individual great talents and have no business in the world being a tag team. Your thoughts, Brian? Uh, I'm against right now, Maria and Matt Taven and Bennett, just because I'm, as I've said recently, they're jamming ring of honor stuff onto this show out of nowhere and it's not helping the show. And it's well, not now, helping but wait a minute. They, they wrestled in ring of honor before, but they Certainly to God, if they bring them in, they're not just going to say, oh, they can only be in Ring of Honor. They're coming to AEW, right? I'm talking about, I want to see these guys in AEW. I'm saying I think it's going to be for the next Ring of Honor pay-per-view, but we'll see what happens. <sighs> With FTR, you know what I didn't like? And I've said it before, I'm a big fan of Swerve, and I like Keith Lee as a heel with Swerve, because they're so different. But they did a little thing that drives me crazy. Renee Young, or Renee uh, Paquette, introduces FTR and then they walk from the side like they weren't there 
and the camera just shows them for a second without anyone saying anything. That WWE thing they yeah. do. I hate that. And it's so wrong and unnecessary. And there's no reason to do that. Whoever said that they should do that, they shouldn't do that. It looks like WWE, and that's not a good... It's not one of the things in WWE you should copy. I agree. I concur. But let's talk about something else they shouldn't copy. Any more fake fights in the back? <sighs> so meanwhile, ladies and gentlemen, remember we saw 15 minutes of pockets and the chuckle fucks. We see FTR for 30 seconds on a backstage promo. Now here's Jay Lethal. And what's he doing? He's in the back of the arena with Sanjay Dutt and Darby Allen and Officer Barbrady. And apparently they gave him one minute for this whole thing because Jay Lethal rushes through a challenge. And Sanjay Dutt says he know Darby, knows Darby's weakness. And then they get in a fake fight and they knock Darby down. And we've gone over the physics of the garage doors in the back of these arenas. And they did it again. They put Darby under the garage door and closed it on him. Like he would be stuck under it. Like that these things are the sword of Damocles or out of an Edgar Allan Poe novel. And even when they encounter resistance, <laughs> there's no such thing as a safety feature. And the door will continue pushing down on you until it cuts you in half. And then while he's stuck under the goddamn door, supposedly, Jay puts a figure four on him while he's stuck under the door. Help me, Brian. I was happy. Did this look preposterous? Well, I actually thought before everything happened, Jay Lethal was the best we've seen of Jay Lethal because he seemed natural, seemed like someone you're intrigued by. Sanjay drags him down. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sanjay just does it. Comes across like a minor league San Sanjay, manager. well, that's the thing. Sanjay's doing the same thing they did with that Robert Stone and NXT and that Mark Sterling. He's yeah. doing he's doing comedic manager mannerism parodies. He's doing Mark Sterling. He's doing Chavo when he managed Andrade. Like, just the stuff that doesn't fit and doesn't really work well. Jay Lethal on his own or Jay, Jay Lethal with someone else other than Sanjay may be all right, but Sanjay's dragging Lethal down. As far as the door thing, of course, I thought of you right away in that Nick Jackson Jericho angle way back. Uh, I mean, uh, well, you said everything I think about it. I guess I'll ask yeah. one other question. The FTR promo with Swerve and Keith Lee, that was taped with Renee Young. We didn't see Renee Young in front of the crowd. This was also in the back. Do you think Tony's learned that he's not flying everyone in every week and now he's taping stuff two weeks in advance? No, I, th I think everybody's still there. I think he's just putting all the people that you would want to see in the back to hide them and putting all of his friends out in the ring so they can stink the joint out. Because how... I mean, I guess you could have taped all that stuff last week, but uh, my God, then uh, this... I don't, I've never seen anybody book anything like in this fashion to just just do all this fucking chaos. How do you know last week to do a backstage fucking fight and a garage door thing when you don't know what's... All right, never mind. Let's get to the good stuff. 
And it ain't going to take long because we're there. Tony Schiavone was in the, in the wing, in the ring with William Regal. And before Regal had a chance to speak, MJF's music plays. And here comes him, and you can tell that he knew that he had a long story to tell because he didn't waste any time. He got to the ring. As soon as he was in the ring, the music cut off. Tony Schiavone vanished again. Why did they have him in the ring? But here comes MJF. And he told the story, and I'm not going to try to tell the story or give any of the high points. This was one of the most amazing verbal performances I've ever seen. But the story of what, how Regal treated him when he was 19, and, and some people are going to go absolutely apeshit that they said, oh, he got a job as a WWE job guy. And he said it on AEW. Well, it's a true story. And this is what's registering with people because it's not wink, wink. Oh, this is a shoot because I'm calling you by your real name. It's he's telling a real story that happened to him. I've never heard this story before, but it certainly sounds plausible. It sounds believable. Maybe he branched off a little bit. Maybe Regal didn't tell him off as bad as he said he did at the end, but where does the work begin and end? We don't know. But much of this stuff happened, and he delivered the story in a way that not only made it clear, but made you listen to him and gave a reason for his motivation. This might have even been a, a supervillain origin story. Instead of gamma rays or a radioactive spider bite, he got pissed off by and disrespected by William Regal. And it made him want to get better to prove to everybody, blah, blah, blah. I'd And honestly, I don't know where this is going, where they're trying to want this to go with MJF. Because he's saying things that are ever more sympathetic to a person, and they're liking him anyway. But at the same time, my feeling is, and I'll say this publicly, if MJF was to switch babyface to where he starts selling like Ricky Morton and starts being nice to anyone or being polite to anyone or being respectful to anyone, it takes away what makes MJF special. They're going to cheer for him because he's far and away so much more talented and fresher and newer and different than everybody else in that fucking company and everybody else in this business that people are going to love him. But they love the devil. They don't love the reformed devil. So the best thing he can do and the best thing they can do with him because they got a winner here is just realize that he needs to be with the provocation and the origin story and the details that he's fleshing out. He still needs to be the devil. It's just those fans are going to learn to love them some devil. He come, if he becomes a nice guy, well, no, he you're has taking to, it away from him. He has to stay who he is no matter what, whether he's yeah. a whether he's a heel or a baby face or whatever you want to call him. So, but what a performance. And, and 
He even said, I would have killed myself, but I wouldn't give you the satisfaction, Regal. And then, and honestly, here's the thing. After telling that story, he turned around and switched heel again at the end of the thing. By the time he quit speaking, he was right back as a heel. But <laughs> when he threw the microphone down, the crowd gave him... It wasn't a standing ovation, but it was an ovation for the verbal performance that he just gave. It was amazing. They they even recognized, regardless of whether we agreed or disagreed with what he said or whatever the fuck, that was one of the goddamn most of And especially these people have sat through an hour of this horseshit at that point. But, my God. And then... As soon as Regal starts talking, the people are starting to boo him because he's been made to look bad by MJF. But Regal, remember when he debuted and he even apologized afterwards, he was rusty. It went nowhere. This was Regal. On any other night with anybody in the ring but MJF, this William Regal's would have been the best promo of the week or the best performance or whatever. Because he reminded MJF that he was 16 when he went to the carnivals and had grown men kicking his ass. And this is true, and everybody knows it's been his book. And that lit the fire under his ass. And so he lit a fire under MJF's ass. And he chastised him for assaulting Tony Schiavone. But he said he knew that MJF always had it. But he let Regal down because he hasn't proven anything. He's hired people to do his dirty work. And he turned his back on MJF and offered him the shot. And that's where MJF wouldn't do it. And Regal told him he's still got a lot to prove. And for once, somebody walks off on MJF and leaves him thinking about it. I want to see as if I had confidence as a professional and as a fan of his, if I had confidence that at some point they're not going to fuck MJF up with this bad booking or Tony's stupid ideas or Jericho's advice or somebody getting in the way of this guy, I would love this without reservation because I don't know where it's going. I want to see the next installment. I want to hear them interact again. I want to know what MJF is going to do. It's perfect. If there was some, if there was a Bill Watts, Eddie Graham, Dusty Rhodes, somebody in charge that you would trust with a generational talent's career in their hands, then I would be all over this. But I'm just trepidatious because if it's just MJF doing things, I'm fine. But if Tony or any of his stooges and suck-ups start meddling in this, I'm afraid for what might happen. But otherwise, fucking brilliant. Wait a minute. Both Regal and MJF. Yeah, you said it was a great performance from MJF. You know, like, I guess a lot of great performances in wrestling, I think there was a lot of truth in what he said. You know, where they're going from here on is obviously something that they're going to work on. But it sounded like there was a lot of real shit in this. And that's, of course, what makes wrestling angles work yeah. and what makes people care. They're teasing a lot of different things, whether it's MJF outright being a babyface, whether it's Regal 
turning with MJF, whether it's MJF not breaking the rules, MJF turning against the firm. I mean, they've teased a lot of different things, and no one knows what's going on. MJF's the one guy, you, other than the Jericho feud, which we all knew how it was going to end, unfortunately, you can never predict what's going to happen. And whatever's going on with him and Moxley over the AEW title, they announced the title match later on in the show coming up. You have all this drama now with him and Regal. It's an intriguing time, and he's the one guy whose segment delivers each and every week on this show. Like you said, and I think because of what he went through, I have to imagine this guy knows as well as everyone else what that one-year-long Jericho feud was. And although he's not doing anything with Jericho, as we've talked about here on the show, and as we announced earlier in the show with this press release, Jericho has a more hands-on role with AEW right now than ever before. His friends are agents. He's very, very close with Mega. He has Tony's ear. And a lot of his ideas are getting on TV more than ever before. The Young Bucks aren't there to counter-program Jericho. CM Punk's not there to counter-program Jericho. Of course, Cody is long gone. I think MJF is hopefully in a position where Tony Khan realizes this is the number one star in my company, and he certainly will be going forward unless we fuck it up. He's not going to let Jericho or anyone else near whatever he does. I have to think he knows that if he's going to do this, he has to do it right himself. Oh, well, we shall see. Because Jericho's the one. See, that's the thing. I feel like, you know, I remember years ago at the Eddie Gilbert Memorial Brawl, there was the nice moment where everyone was in the ring. And all of a sudden, there was a chant in the whole building of Eddie. You know, it was very nice. His family's in the ring, and they're chanting Eddie. What always bothered me was I saw who started it. I saw that it was Don Leibel, the photographer who's friends with Eddie at ringside, started it and looked around to get people going. It felt predetermined. And I feel like when Jericho put out there and insisted on it and trying to show what a genius he is at that press scrum, that MJF needs to be a babyface, it kind of poisoned everything. Because once that was put out there from Jericho with Tony Khan sitting next to him, yeah. insisting on it, that, that's the only thing I worry about. This wasn't as natural as it should have been because it's been forced by yeah. comments and by certain people. Well, because you've got a fucking, you know, egotistical canned ham sitting there wanting to give his viewpoints on everything instead of letting things happen. Can you imagine if Vince McMahon had been out at a press scrum and when Austin first started getting popular but was still a heel going, yeah, we're, we're going to switch Steve Babyface sooner or later. You people are just loving him. No, he let it fucking happen. He didn't tell them how to react when they were already reacting a way that was beneficial to him. But again, with all that said, I'm intrigued by MJF and Regal. I'm intrigued where this is going. As much as I like MJF's matches, I'm not looking forward to MJF versus Moxley because I know it'll be Moxley's match more than it'll be MJF's match. I just know it. But we'll see where they go. I, I have faith in MJF. Since the Jericho feud, MJF has a really high batting average. Next to CM Punk, probably the highest batting average in AEW. So I have faith in whatever's going on. I have a little bit of faith. Well, one of the next segments was an example of how to completely neuter and neutralize the hottest guy in the company. Because Renee was sitting down with Brian Danielson and Wheeler Useless. And... Yeah, I'm not, as I said before, I'm not getting the sense that Renee is the second coming of Barbara Walters, this incisive, you know, 
female reporter, but she's better than Officer Bar Brady. However, this was Brian Danielson, who remember it's less than a year still ago that he was the highlight of the program. We couldn't wait to hear the the promos, the fucking matches. Now he's sitting there spinning this whole promo, putting Daniel Garcia over and sounded like he was thrilled about it. And then Wheeler Useless basically tells Brian Danielson off. You should have seen it coming a mile away, this thing with Garcia. I knew he was a snake. You fell for it. And he tells Brian Danielson off and walks off from him like now. Danielson is Wheeler's fucking flunky. Jesus H. Christ. And that was the most blah segment that Brian Danielson has been in since he's. they have figured out a way to make Danielson boring and immaterial. Well, a few things here. One, the less Yuta talks, the better, if you want him to get over. He has like that Seth Rollins screech a little bit. Not a good talker. Certainly not now. Danielson sat there. And I feel like in a lot of ways, this was a microcosm of his entire AEW run. He just sat there and let things happen. And that's that. Does Danielson exert himself? Does Danielson have ideas of his own? Does Danielson, is he happy with the way he's being booked? Is he just content? He's just happy to have a job and he can have his matches and he doesn't care about how he's booked? Because none of this makes any sense. He means so much less today than he meant a year ago. And when he came in a year ago, we were talking about, oh my God, the biggest gate they could do would be Danielson versus Punk. This would be the yeah. biggest house. If they did that match today, if Punk came back today to wrestle against Danielson, it wouldn't mean as much. Not because of Punk, but because of the way Danielson's been used. He's lost a Jericho and, and, a bunch and, of times. And not, not because of Danielson, because of the way Danielson's been used. He's still that talent, but now they've rendered it meaningless. Yeah, but even his matches, to me, like I said before, they've gotten less creative than ever before. The other problem is talent be damned. And actually, I think Garcia is a lot more talented than Yuta. But they, Tony, fucking Jericho, even Moxley, they are insistent on building towards Yuta and Garcia like this matters to anyone right now. <laughs> they have forced these guys into spots and into being involved with other main event wrestlers, they've forced them into these spots when there were other people the fans chose and were ready to go. And this is the problem when you have too many people, you have too many cooks. Everyone has their person they want to use, whether it's right or wrong. I'm not saying Yuta couldn't be something eventually. Garcia, I think, is more of a... has much more potential than Yuta. But still, the way he's been used and how he's been used and how he's being forced onto that show... That's the problem. Yuta and Garcia have been picked by these guys, by Tony and his friends, and they're not giving up on this, whether or not it's good TV or not. Well, speaking of not giving up, Chris Jericho is apparently his, you know, meaning of life now. His mission is to destroy all of the legacy and respect that Ring of Honor had. Right? He's going to be the sports entertainer. It's going to tear up Ring of Honor, the company that no longer exists. And the guy that's trying to uphold 
the honor of Ring of Honor is former Ring of Honor champion Dalton Castle. I got to be, I was gone a few years before Dalton Castle came into Ring of Honor. I don't remember I've ever met him. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen him have a long match. I think I've seen some clips. I thought he was, you know, uh, uh, at one point I saw him do some great German suplex shit. He's a very strong young man, but I've never seen the gimmick in full bloom. And now I have. And, you know, I, this is like Adrian Street. Adrian Street came along and in the 80s when he came over from England and stood out. It was completely different from everything. Nobody was doing, at least in the territories that Adrian was in, was doing anything remotely flamboyant like that. So if Dalton Castle was in a situation like that where he was the only one, I might buy this. But since every goddamn thing on this show and every goddamn thing on every other show looks so fucking visually ridiculous and silly and hokey and fake and blah, blah, this didn't stand out. This just added to the fucking stink of the, the carnival fucking livestock car. It's it. so the guy trying to uphold the honor of ring of honor. When Jericho went for the code of honor at the beginning of the match, Dalton castle puts his hand down the front of his tights, plays with his crotch and then pulls out a fucking finger for Jericho for the code of honor. He's the one upholding the honor of ring of honor. Ian Riccoboni was on color. He should be the host of every program Tony has. But Sockface is a friend. And Dalton Castle came out with nine of what they called the boys. His they're all dressed in Mardi Gras masks and I don't I, I, what did I say about Sonny Kiss that one time made everybody upset. He looked like he got off his day show with the, as a drag queen at the Tropicana. Well, they look like they're in the chorus line of I don't know what. I don't know where they even got these costumes. But at one point, Jake Hager gets up on the apron of the ring and Dalton Castle nails him off to the floor and then one of the boys jumps in the ring. This is during the match. One of the boys jumps in the ring and he grabs the boy and throws him out of the ring through the ropes onto Hager. Then another one and then a third one. That was the break spot. And I determined at that point that I would not be returning after the break. I skipped ahead and oh, Jericho retained. You didn't see them brawling on the floor, throwing punches at Jake Hager? No, I did not. You have, to go, you have to go back and see that. Jake Hager, who you want to talk about the power of Chris Jericho. Jake Hager, who's been there since the beginning, getting a very nice contract, has meant nothing to anyone there. Jake Hager is on the floor with his purple hat, and the boys surround him and start punching in his direction. A few of them looked like they were almost punching him, but a few of them were just punching air. And the camera was right there, right on top of it. Uh, well, somehow, after Jericho retained, Jericho and all of his 
Minions ended up on the stage and Jerry Lynn was chastising them. He's an agent there. So Jericho picks up Jerry Lynn and gave him a tombstone pile driver on the stage like he was my Aunt Lola. I've, if you, in the words of Dusty Rhodes, don't do shit you don't know how to do. If you can't do the move, don't do the move. He thought it'd be a great idea to tombstone Jerry Lynn on the entrance stage and then realized that he was going to kill him because he couldn't do it. So he bent his knees and did like a squat and then kind of sat down forward a little bit. I mean, I've, I've gotten out of bed harder. And I'm not suggesting, because I love Jerry Lynn, known him from, since the fucking late 80s. I'm not suggesting he should have hurt him. I'm suggesting he shouldn't have done the fucking move. What'd you think of it? Was it dangerous from your perspective? I mean, it was the safest tombstone pile driver I've ever seen in my life. It was unnecessary. I mean, let me ask you this. Everyone knows what I think. I don't have to say it. If you're booking something where you have a guy who wins a championship and he's going to show his superiority over the past. I mean, if you're watching this and the booking's not obvious, I don't know what is. I mean, Jericho's just going to steamroll over every champion. Then what are you watching for if you know the result of the match? Because you know what's going to happen. I mean, it's not going to make all of a sudden, oh, this week Jericho surprisingly lost to Austin Aries on, on AWTV. <laughs> Former Ring of Honor champion has won it back. He's just going to beat every champion they have there. What do you think of all this stuff with Jericho and Ring of Honor? He went after Riccoboni. He beat up Bobby Cruz. He's going after their champions. Again, Ring of Honor's all over this show. Am I just being too hard on this? Well, no, a lot of people are saying, well, it's, it's good because, um, you know, Jericho being the Ring of Honor champion, he's a name people know that could help him get a TV deal. And I've mentioned this before. Brian Danielson is a name they know, and he ought to be able to help him get a TV deal if Jericho can, and Danielson's of the same status, and he fits the suit. Danielson wrestled in Ring of Honor before. He has history, and he can do the style. And he can have great matches with others that can make them better that do the style. Jericho, it's a vanity project. It's a championship, so he can beat people. And again, they didn't bring in a succession of outstanding independent stars to put their own fucking champions over. But because it's Jericho, oh yeah, Tony, bring somebody different in every week for me to beat. That's the story here. Well, that's kind of what you do to get anybody over. So I, you know, no, Jericho does not fit at all. And I don't know how that Tony thinks he's going to launch a separate promotion when he can't take care of the one he's got. And then you're going to have a situation where if Taven and Bennett are for Ring of Honor and the Briscoes have been signed to Ring of Honor and Jay Lethal's going to be figured into Ring of Honor. Cole Cabana. And blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm talking Brian about... Brian Cage. I'm talking about talent. You've got... He's got talent that people would want to see on the AEW program instead of these outlaw fucking darlings that he signed three years ago but he's going to stick them in Ring of Honor. So I don't... doesn't make sense. 
You want to talk about the main event? The last match left in Cincinnati, John Moxley's hometown, the AEW World Champion John Moxley versus Hangman Adam Page. And the one time that you would believe that Moxley could come in from the parking lot, because maybe he just lives down the street, he, he came in from the locker room area. He was already inside the building, coming down the long hallway, but he still didn't come out the entranceway. He walked into the arena. And of course, it's two baby faces fighting again for the world title in AEW, which always happens because Tony can't keep his baby face and heels straight or get heat on anybody. So, and yes, of course, it's Moxley's hometown. So they're going to boo Paige because Paige. Actually, this is probably the best thing he's ever done as far as getting people to cheer him because now they'll feel sorry for him so they won't boo him as much as they would just if he was hanging around. But they seem to go full into Paige is going to prove he's a man. Like when he punched himself silly last week. So Paige jumps the champion in the arena. Even though Paige is a babyface too, they can't differentiate between a guy that's going to fight a guy straight up as a man one-on-one and a guy who is just, it's all bullshit and it's all phony. I know the way they present it, but if you're a babyface, why do you want to attack the champion out on the floor and give him a suplex on the concrete floor that nobody in the arena could see because they were over in the corner? And then Paige goes up to the balcony and backflips off of it onto Moxley. Why are you trying to end the guy's career in the goddamn breezeway instead of get him in the ring and beat him for the title if you're a babyface, if you're not a heinous person? They don't know how to work to where it fits the person's personality and still gets the point across. It's either... All chaos or all wrestling. There's no gray area in between. So, at that point, as I mentioned to you right before we went on the air, they went to the break after the balcony backflip, and there was 20 minutes left in the show, and I said, I don't want to watch these fucking two. I'm going to go to bed, and I'll check out the rest of this match tomorrow, because already it's Moxley, they're in the crowd, backflip off the balcony, I don't want to see anymore. But then I carry some stuff up to the office and I get on Twitter because I wanted to check and see if I should retweet anything before I went to bed. And by that point, I see that Adam Page is laying knocked out in the middle of the ring. And as I so I tweeted a few things and then I went back down to watch basically the rest of the match they had is pretty much what you would think. They came back from the break after the balcony backflip three minutes later, and they still weren't in the ring, but Moxley was bleeding. And at that point, it's like a parody of every Moxley match. None of it's in the ring, and he will bleed. And then, as I mentioned, Adam Page, the upright, honest, forthright cowboy from Virginia mounts Moxley and pummels him on the steel stairs while he's bleeding profusely. And then finally they got in the ring. And they had every indie wrestling fan's dream match. They did their moves to each other back and forth and Moxley was bleeding. And at one point, Page gave Moxley a ridiculously dangerous dead eye 
on the ring apron. And believe it or not, that's not what caused the injury, folks. They go to a break again. They come back. Page throws Moxley off the top rope with a sack of shit, fall away slam. Boom, that doesn't cause an injury. And then Page gives Moxley a clothesline, and Moxley, of course, takes a bump and then gets right back up and doesn't sell it. And Page runs at Moxley, and Moxley clotheslines Page. And Page goes over backwards and lands on his head and stays there. And the one thing they can be happy about was it wasn't Rick Knox, the idiot referee. It was Paul Turner. Uh, I'm, I believe Ring of Honor had those guys trained in spotting concussions and or injuries, but Paul Turner's been in the ring 20 years, and he was right there on top of it. He knew something was wrong, and he stopped it, and they brought the doctor in, Samson, and the doctor made the official stoppage because Paige ain't moving. He knocked himself out. He landed on his head. And there's 10 minutes left in the show, and the match is, is stopped. And then I saw on Twitter, people are trying to, well, is it Boxley's fault, or was it blah, 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 or he couldn't take this bump? Believe me, I'd love to blister one or the other of these guys with being a unprofessional dipshit, but I don't think this was anybody's fault. It was one of those things that happens. Now, having said that, a contributory factor as you and I, Brian, were talking about earlier, is now everybody, you can't just take a clothesline. You've got to, if somebody clotheslines you, it's got to knock you, cut you a backflip. And that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to do the backflip. And instead of going all the way over on his stomach, he landed on his, either the side of his head or his forehead and then went down. And I mentioned to you, and we were talking about this, when. 30 years ago, the first time you saw a son of a bitch take a backflip off a clothesline, you're holy shit. Well, now there's multiple of them in every match, and they get right back up. So if there was fault to be ascribed to anybody here, it's the fault of the general wrestling population that now we got to get clothesline and take a backflip. And everybody's figured out the best method to do it. And that's what they're doing. And sooner or later, somebody was going to land on their fucking head. Guess what happened on live national television? But it wasn't either guy's fault except, goddamn, making shit more complicated than it needs to be. But but this was not even the, the most dangerous thing either one of these guys did in this match. So... Anyway, they stopped it, and then here was the thing. There was 10 minutes left on the air, and I know they didn't expect this, but they go to the announce desk and with graphics run down the Rampage card. Somebody in the truck said, hey, sock face, just run down the Rampage card. A, a guy is down being checked by the doctor. Would it, Do they do that in football? You watch football. Nobody gets hurt in baseball. It's a pussy sport. But in football, baseball's the best sport, there, and people get hurt in baseball too. Well, people can get hurt in podcasting too if you don't watch your fucking attitude. But don't make me change my tone. But if in a football game, 
the guy gets wiped out and he's laying there and they're putting him on a stretcher. They're checking him out, the doctors or whatever. Do they just instantly say, oh, let's plug some upcoming games or do they stay on the situation at hand? They talk about what's happening. They can't ignore it. Obviously, there's something happening on the field with someone being taken off. They have to talk about what's happening. It just happened the other day uh, or a couple weeks ago, Miami, where the quarterback had another concussion on the field and we watched everything happen on TV. Well, they shot everything but Paige, and that was the story. The player down on the field, it's a dangerous sport. We have doctors checking on him. People are concerned. No, they never shot Paige again. They stayed away from it. Like it was goddamn... I know when a mark hits the ring on live TV, you try to stay away from it because that could be a legal situation. Well, who knows? Maybe this is too. They sue everybody else over there. But no, this is a, a player's down on the field. Cover this. This makes wrestling look dangerous because it is. This People were concerned about Paige. They wanted to know more. But they hid Paige. You never saw him again. Moxley cuts a promo. They're tight on him because he's in the ring with Paige, but they won't shoot the man down. And then Moxley cuts the promo. I, I mean, Jade had got chicken shit in earlier without getting bleeped, but there had been a and MJF said, God damn, but there was other bleepings on this program. Then Moxley got bleeped uh, with whatever he said, then said shit twice and then called MJF out, and MJF came out, milked the cash in of the chip, but then made the challenge for full gear, and said, for the first time in my life, I'm going to earn it. That made me my butthole quiver a little bit. Moxley gets bleeped again for saying something, and again for saying something. He's a menace to live television. And they went off the air. But, I mean, you you could... I'm not criticizing any the way they handled this. They stopped it quickly. The doctor was in there. The thing I'm criticizing is then they just completely ignored the only story going on that Paige was down and hurt and being checked by the doctor. That was not the point to run through the matches on a show that nobody's going to watch anyway. Your opinion doesn't change about that if the thought at the time wasn't Oh, it's a concussion. If the thought was maybe he potentially had some sort of spinal damage or some kind of neck issue, and that would prevent him from maybe... Again, Moxley in the ring said, I hope he can walk again. That's where a lot well, of people's okay, minds well, went. Well, yeah, and then Moxley, you know, I, maybe Moxley was trying to make it more dangerous than it actually was because he wanted to make it a big deal. I don't know, but the point is, it, it's, it's the same thing. Moxley's not a spinal surgeon, and I don't think Doc Sampson is... Dr. Jim Andrews in Birmingham, the orthopedic guru, they knew he'd got knocked out. You're not going to diagnose a spinal injury if he's communicating and he was moving his arm, which we saw that. Then there's no reason that you couldn't have a long shot of the ring. I'm not talking about put the camera up his fucking nose and intrude on the conversation he's having with the doctor, but you could report on what's going on. Should it be they covered? Up, Should it be covered like something that's actually happening by those commentators? Taz was the yes, only one who Yes, because it was actually happening. Because Taz was the only one who showed any sort of emotion really at, at all to what was happening. Well, because he's he's been hurt before and he knows how it feels and he knows what's going on. But yes, that was the story. Not give us the full diagnosis, but they took the bottom rope off, they put him on a stretcher, they carried him out. 
that would be seen in football. Oh, how, how many years ago was it that one of the University of Louisville basketball players broke his leg in a game and it was so gruesome that when his own teammates and actually the opposing team on the sidelines saw it, you didn't see it on camera. You saw the teammates react to it. Half of the college basketball players jumped up to their feet and jumped backwards over their bench. It was so gruesome. The bone, lower bone snapped, came out through the skin, everything. You never saw that detail on television. You saw the guy go down, and then they shot the court long ways. And you, they replayed the reaction shots. Nobody Once they saw, the viewers saw how the ball players viewed the incident, they didn't want to see it. And But they were reporting on the guy, that we've got the EMTs there. They've called the ambulance. They're not up on the goddamn compound fracture, but people know what's going on because that was the story. It's a, it's a live sporting event. These things happen that should have been covered. But they're all of these people are in show business. They're not in sports. They don't know what would actually happen. They think they're all actors and entertainers. You know, when baseball, when a player gets hurt, because it happens in baseball too, Jim, you know, if a player crashes into a wall, a lot of times players crash into each other. Someone doesn't yell, I got it, or someone doesn't hear the other person yell, I got it. Swami heard it because he's barking up a storm out there. <laughs> but usually what happens is you see the injury. Unless it's something really severe, you'll see a few replays of it to try to figure out what's happening. Because the commentators are trying to figure out what's happening just like you are at home. Yeah. Then maybe you'll see some shots of some fans watching, maybe some people in the dugout watching. If it's bad, they're not going to do close-ups of the player. If he's moving around, you may see him put his hand to his head. And then usually they put him on a cart, take him off the field. You see that and you get a big ovation from the fans. They address it. They don't just have someone disappear in the middle of the game. And you just have to hope that someone else mentions it ever again. And I'll say this. I thought of this and then we'll close up. I, I've got places to go, people to see and things to do. But I was trying to remember in my time as a photographer and then as a performer, a photographer in the 70s, performer in the 80s, booker and performer in the 90s, I'm trying to remember the first time that I was either saw or was present when somebody got knocked out and couldn't finish a match. And I can't remember it. I saw a guy in the gardens get his leg broken one night and Obviously, he couldn't get up and finish that match, but it was a tag team match, so the partner just fucking... It was Luke Graham, and the guy that got his leg broke was John Rogers. Crazy Luke Graham gives the fucking thumb to the throat. The guy falls over, the guy with the broken leg. The guy with the broken leg fucking pins him, and he gets carried out. Um, The famous finish with Inoki and Hulk Hogan, where Hogan hit him with the clothesline he took the bump off the apron we still don't know whether that was legitimate or not there was controversy about that but it made huge news because something like that never happens and i've seen guys get their bell rung especially in tag team matches but still finish the match because they weren't knocked completely out bobby fulton's done that once but and i'm not saying that to again to it's Moxley's fault or it's Page's fault. I'm saying something's going on 
that there's more injuries than ever before, that it's happening more frequently, and that they're, they're worse injuries when they do happen, requiring surgeries and concussion protocols and long times off and all that stuff. And you asked me earlier, they didn't have a concussion protocol back in the 70s and 80s, and that's correct. They didn't. They didn't know that much about it. And guys got their bell rung all the time and went right on, and it did damage. But at the same time, again, I was at matches seven nights a week for 15 years. <laughs> and, and this shit didn't happen. It, so it, it, something's different. And to me, it, it boils down to everybody's doing more and taking more chances and hitting harder or getting more complicated or getting more dangerous. And it still doesn't register because people are seeing this stuff. It's like a constant highlight video of car wrecks. You can't look away from the car wreck until it lasts 30 minutes and then you get bored with it. So now that's what guys are doing. They are flying off of and falling down on and going through and getting hit with more shit than ever before. And because it happens so constantly, it's not registering with the people. They see it and pop, and then next day they're on to something else. But it's accumulating on the wrestlers' bodies. Who could have ever predicted something like that would happen 30 years ago? You know, the most famous example of it happening on TV is the time it didn't actually happen, but the Shawn Michaels-Owen Hart angle Yes, in 95. And I'm glad you brought that up because somebody's going, well, Cornette, you were in on one. Everybody, and we made, um, we took as much precaution as we could take to make sure that that looked legitimate. But Michaels had had the concussion, gotten beaten up in upstate New York, whatever. Everybody knew that was true. And everybody knew he returned from his concussion. And at, the proper point, we were in Richmond, Virginia that night. I've never seen a house that small as in Richmond that night for WWF Monday Night Raw. Um, but it was horrible. But Michaels, at some point in the match, all of a sudden, woozy, oh, equilibrium, dizzy, and goes down. And then me and Owen are like, what, what the fuck? What do we do? What do we do? That was a work. 25 years later, I'll reveal that. But everybody was concerned because you never saw something like that happen. And now, and you still don't see guys actually, you know, knocked out and unable to finish the match. Well, except in AEW, there's that they jumped off the top rope and landed on that guy's head here months ago. That was a dark match, not a TV match. And they just drug him to the side and tagged him out and continued around him. But I... I I'm not, I'm not saying I'm happy Adam Page landed on his head, even if he is boring and blah and fucked up the whole company by starting the whole snowball rolling with punk. But that doesn't mean I want to see him break his neck, but guess he's going to try to do it regardless of how I feel about it. But again, the, you can't do all this shit and get away with it forever. So... There you go. Well, that was AEW Dynamite from Cincinnati. And there you go. 
And as we're wrapping things up, Jim, you are trending again on Twitter. What I do now? Apparently, a lot of people have a problem. Apparently, you're a racist because of again your, because of your comments about Athena and her stiffness in that match with the other wrestler. Because Athena's black, because she's throwing this girl around and fucking beating the shit out of her. If I criticize that because she's black, then that means I'm a racist. What the fuck? Apparently you using the phrase snatch you bald headed has gotten people upset. How is that racist? I don't know. I'm actually looking it up because it's not a phrase I'm used to. Here's Mama so- Cornette used to say that all the time. Here's an article. Where is this from? The Journal Inquirer. Lastly, an Enfield reader wrote, bet you haven't heard this one. My Swiss-German mom used to yell, if you don't stop that, I'm going to snatch you bald-headed. Yeah, grab you by the hair and it'll come all out. Those New Englanders I moved among never let me forget it when I first used it. This is an article about slang words from the past, so apparently you using a phrase that other people weren't aware of about a wrestler that other people (laughs) may like makes you another racist. (laughs) Oh, God. All righty. Anyway, don't get snatched bald-headed, folks. Listen to our programs <laughs> every day, and when we'll we'll leave your hair alone. Yeah, Mama Cornette used to say that. She says, "I'll snatch you bald-headed if you don't come over here." Whatever the case. The worst is still Tracy Smothers. I'll beat your what did it say? I'll beat your dick stiff. Whatever she used to say. No, I'll knock your dick stiff. I'll knock your dick stiff. That was yeah. the fucking. Well, you know, actually, and maybe Adam Page can comment on this. Sometimes when you get fucking knocked out, it makes your dick stiff. That's where that fucking phrase came up. All right. Well, the things you learn on the Jim Cornette, this is not the experience, on Jim Cornette's drive through which we are finishing up. We will have a song next week. We've been running long for two days now. But Jim, any final words this week? Yes. Goodbye. That's right. The usual plugs will return next week. You know how to find us and where to find us. We'll be back on the experience this weekend. And for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella, and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. mighty cult of cornets, and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, dick spots, or dance routines, with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? 
She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pedro, everybody. Connie's drive-thru. Connie's drive-thru. Connie's drive-thru. Connie's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.